Welcome to the Uncomfortable Conversations podcast, the untold stories of the 3HO Kundalini Yoga community. I'm your host, Guru Nishan. As uh, always, at the beginning of every episode, I like to read the intentions for why we started this podcast. And number one, to break the veil of silence that has long permeated and continues to strangle the 3HO Kundalini Yoga community in the name of neutrality. Number two, to validate and help clarify the complex feelings of those who have joined this lifestyle, were born and raised into it, and or who have practiced or taught Kundalini Yoga. Number three, to encourage active listening to uncomfortable conversations from our community as a revolutionary act of self and collective healing. Number four, to let survivors know that we see them, we believe them, we love them, and we will fight for their truth to be addressed. Number five, to let teachers who are denying, gaslighting, or spiritually bypassing know that what they are doing is willfully ignorant and re-traumatizing victims. Number six, to illuminate the inherent racism, homophobia, cultural appropriation, and exploitation that perpetuates the teachings, 3HO lifestyle, and overall community ethos. Number seven, to stop the perpetuation of gaslighting and victim shaming by naming it for what it is. Number eight, to dismantle internalized shame, guilt, toxic positivity, and light washing mentality. Number nine, to honor all of the parts of ourselves that have been forgotten or silenced. Number 10, to honor each and every body that has come through this community, both named and unnamed. And number 11, to encourage people to do their own research, to process their own emotions, to get somatic therapy and other therapy and support as needed, to draw your own conclusions and to be critical thinkers rather than to just blindly follow anyone. Please remember that your story matters. Please share it when you're ready. We're here to listen and to support you. Before I introduce our guest for today, I want to just um, remind you that if you are interested in telling your story on the Uncomfortable Conversations podcast, um, you can email me at gn at gurunishan.com. Please subscribe to the podcast uh, wherever you listen to podcasts. 
And also at gurunishan.com, you can um, subscribe to my latest podcast, which is Uncomfortable Conversations on Predators in Business, Community, and Culture. And I have branched out to have a larger platform to discuss the complexity of what we're really unpacking when we're talking about 3HO and the experiences that we've gone through in waking up to growing up that we've actually been born in a cult as opposed to a spiritual community and shape-shifting and re-examining our identities. And so I want to invite you to listen to uh, my latest podcast because this podcast, speaking about 3HO, has really informed my process and my own sense of identity and realizing how much my own false identity has informed my whole life and that that's not my fault. It's a byproduct of my upbringing and by my own nature of survival, I had to have survival mechanisms of seeing myself and seeing the world in a way. And so predators in business community and culture really allows us to take the conversations that we've been having on the 3HO podcast and bring it to another platform of talking about uncomfortable conversations. Um, you can see it on any um, podcasting platform on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, or you can just go to gurunishan.com and you can see my podcasts and all of them are there, including this platform. Um, but as I've said, this is still a space that I'm dedicating specifically to speaking to 3HO un untold stories. That's not gonna end just because I'm also doing other things. So please um, hear that and know that and our process is all um, our own. And so I'm just really excited to introduce our um, uh, guest for today for this very reason, because we're listening, people are listening. And when you're ready to tell your story, it's the right time and there's no hurry in that. So um, let me introduce you to our guest for today. And her name is Darcy LaRoque and she was born Darcy Clack in 1971. Her father joined 3HO in 1974 in the New Haven ashram. And her father, um, her and her mom, her mom and her father were divorced at the age of five and she started visiting the ashram in Dorchester, Massachusetts where her father had moved. She would visit via Greyhound bus, but then one day in first grade Catholic school, her dad and a friend in full bana showed up in the middle of a school day and took her. Darcy was taken to the Dorchester ashram, and even though her mom had full custody, her father wouldn't give her back. It was the 1970s. Her mom was then 23 years old and could not fight it, so she joined 3HO and moved in. Darcy's dad was Davising, her mom was Ramsarankar, and her name became Umpmakar. After children's camp in 1978, at seven years old, she was sent to the newly created Guardian Program in New Mexico, where she stayed for years, first with one set of guardians, then the heads of the ashram, which among other things, she had direct ranch access that only in hindsight she could now see as special. During this time, her mom moved to the LA ashram and YB engaged her to be married. She was supposed to go to India, but stayed behind with even more YB and ranch access. 
her friends, other kids in the Guardian program, left in the first group to Missouri, India. She ended up in LA and in New Mexico in a couple years back and forth, and she was fully out at the age of 13. Her dad stayed in 3HO until he died 16 years ago. Her mom left when she was 15 years old, and she continued to work at the Golden Temple and stayed dressed in a turban while she worked. She died seven years ago. Darcy's whole life in 3HO was her life via her dad and her friends from her age, from under the age of 13. She didn't choose to be cut out. Only until she was 40 years old, she considered herself a Sikh. Only in the past two years did she finally recognize that she wasn't a Sikh. She was raised in a cult. So yeah, I just want to welcome you, Darcy. This, this uh, bio um, is like, wow. And you're going to bring us some wow. But even before we get going, I wanted to say thank you for being here. I uh, consider you like the OG of second gen, you know, it's like the original young people, you know, and to not go to India and be this demographic of age is a very rare occasion huh. to uh, come across, so to speak, um, yeah. to hear from your voice really matters. And so even to have you on this platform today means so much to me. Um, I've witnessed you just in the groups and I just want to say thank you for being here. Well, and thank you. Um, first of all, I want to thank you for your patience. You and I, I think, started the conversation many, many, many moons ago as to me participating in this. And I had to reconcile some things still. I had to reconcile some things just in my own space, um, especially because, and we'll talk about this a bit today, I always felt like because I didn't go to India, my trauma wasn't enough. Mm. Um, that somehow that because I know what my friends experienced, I got saved and thereby I, I, I didn't have permission to have a voice because it just, it wasn't as severe. And as the past few years have happened and I had created this kind of Peter Pan version of childhood where mm. it was an adventure, it was unique. I had not allowed for the fact that there was going to be implications and choices I've made throughout my entire life that were from being a part of or directly in 3HO for my most formative years of my life. So I appreciate you taking the, having the patience. So thank you. And I'm very glad to be here today. Yes. I mean, you speak to something that's so important is, you know, the, the, the process, like what happens when we start uh, having our veil pierced, right? Our mm -hmm. own identities that are held until we realize, whoa, how we've framed things. And that early childhood age, like we're talking about from five to 13, like even hearing your bio, I wanted to share the whole thing because you have so many details to share with us today. I didn't want to take up the time to explain that. I wanted people to yeah. be able to hear that. And then you can fill in the details of that span of time. Um, but to, to, to say it might, it wasn't severe enough. You didn't go to India. That's a big thing in 3HO for those of us yeah. that didn't go versus did go mm -hmm. that divide of like enoughness. And right. then that's so interesting. Um, 
that that only kind of started kind of crumbling just in the last few years by seeing it all different? Well, it, I've genuinely just always felt that way. And, you know, to your point, and we'll probably go into this a little bit more later, I, I dared to, and I credit my friends, I can't even explain how hard it was for them with their parents, the parentals, that they were maintaining a friend who chose to show up on Bruce Road in a miniskirt in the 80s, or <laughs> dared to, they would come to parties with me um, on their summer breaks when I was in high school in Los Angeles. And this was a time where if you were not in, you were out. And um, God, they stayed strong. <laughs> and I think, you know, partially there's a million reasons why we're all this OG group. We're, there's, there's separations that occur. And somebody said to me the other day, oh, you haven't talked to so-and-so in so long. And I said, it's not that we're not talking. We just haven't talked. Mm -hmm. And there's a very big difference. Because when we get together, there is this effortless, effortless ease. And I've always said this, when I'm with them, it's the safest place I've ever been. Mm. Um, and I've had the opportunity to have some of my best friends who are not in 3 at all, who've only maybe seen a picture or two of me and or met some of my closest friends, see me in context, whether it's that my high school boyfriend came with me to Española for one of my best friend's weddings. And I forgot which side of the room to sit on. And Sada was like, Darfs, move. <laughs> but then he was like, yeah, sit here. And we were like laughing. And I was like, oh my God, I forgot what side of the room to sit on in Gudwara. <laughs> and, hilarious. but my boyfriend came and here we were. And my friends have just always been zero Fs given. And um, I, that's I'm just one pause. of the two testaments. I'm going to pause so that listeners really hear what's happening. Um, you're speaking to this group of kids that were the early uh, yeah. detachment program. What was it? The, mm -hmm. um, the, the detachment, the, these young kids that the earliest, earliest kids, yeah. whatever ages span lived in children's ashrams and in these right. early times. So they were children's ashrams or in guardianships. Right. And so you're speaking to the age groups that got to know each other and have this like such early bond that then continued and, and those friendships only solidified in different ways in India right. or, or factions or however people end up calling it. Um, but then you maintained this type of tight knit. So what Darcy spoke to was that th this generation of, of, my oldest brother is in this generation. Yes, yes. And it's a unique age group because it's the oldest age group, let's say, right. and of second gen born in. And you don't hear much from them because there's a whole unique code of connection that is a bond of life that, yeah. you know, um, many don't fully understand when looking at the complexity and conversation of 3HO. And so thank you for bringing that a little bit here because you're speaking to how, even though you were quote out and whoever else might've been like wearing a high heels and a mini skirt 
going to LA ashram at a time when, you know, if you had trimmed your hair, people would be noticing. And I did. Would, it was a big, you know, big deal. When it <laughs> happened. Are, right. Deal. <laughs> exactly. My friend's right. mother went off on me. <laughs> so wearing, there wasn't the nail polish and lips, you know, these things yeah. were just in and out. You were a slut. If you were doing these things, these things were like publicly shamed in ways that were just everywhere. Um, yes. But let's bring it back for listeners because yes. We're all up in the 80s right there. Yeah, so let's go back to the 70s. Yes. Where it all began. Yeah, so that really, number one, your your bio stands out in, in the kidnapping aspect, you know, yeah. and the normalcy of that, um, because it's not only I, other, I know other stories exist. I know this is going to be really helpful for listeners to hear yeah. this existence. So I don't know where you want to begin, but share yeah hear what you want to in terms of filling that in because even the fact that your guardianship was in new mexico with the heads of the ashram the the amount of early access like i really want you to spend as much time there because we don't get to hear about all that so yeah so i think um it's interesting because it's i've had friends outside 3ho be fascinated so i today is really going to be the first time i have ever start to finish share this Um, I feel like I'm boring people. I feel like it's tedious. I feel like it's crazy. So I edit. I edit everything I say outside of my 3HO friends. Um, And I want to start with, and this is really important because it's my father. My father, um, and there are so many people who will hear this. My father was not a mentally well man. He was a wife abuser. I mean, he beat the hell out of my mother. So I say that to say that there was a culture of violence that I don't know if the people in 3HO did or did not understand because my father's anger really seemed directed towards women specifically. Um, I don't know if men did or did not get to see that side of him necessarily. I am told some did. I had heard rumors, especially when I was in New Mexico, about almost keeping me away from my father. He had developed a reputation Um, and, or more specifically, I guess he just revealed himself. (laughs) Um, So I, the first time that happened is I was four ish and my mom and I, I remember my father coming into our home. He had, he had disappeared and my, but my mom and dad were already heading towards divorce at that time. And again, my mom is 22 years old. And my son is 23 right now. And I will tell you, part of this whole journey through me, ha, for me, has been seeing every single thing as my son hit each age. Mm. Um, I mean, we'll talk about it later, but when my son hit seven and I wouldn't let him use a toaster oven, I paused. Mm. This flood came at me of at seven, I think I was seven or eight the first time I shot an AK up at Solstice site. <laughs> And I won't let him use a toaster. (laughs) Mm. I'm pausing. So I say that to say, I think of the fact that my son is now 23 and my mom has my father again, full Bonna, because in the seventies, the white was very serious. Um, Seventies was we could only wear white, gold and blue, right? We had the color codes and white was the dominant. And like, I know that came from him, but why? I mean, I know why. I know the thought process. So my father in this small town in Connecticut, Guilford, shows up in our house and he and this man he's with take everything. 
I mean, like literally roll refrigerator out of our home. And I remember my mom screaming and it seems odd that at such a young age, I would have a memory like this, Mm. but I do remember, I do remember being in the kitchen and I remember it was the first time I ever saw my father punch my mother in the face. And I remember the other man not doing anything instead Mm. of just taking our things out of the home. Um, I jump a lot in time because my life is a series of moments. So my dates aren't necessarily right. I might be seven. I might be eight. I might be five. I might be nine. Um, so it's congruous thoughts and memories because I know then my mom ended up and I moved to an apartment. We had lived in a home, a very small apartment. And my mom started waitressing again. And I was still seeing my father. My father just would not have allowed that not to happen. Um, I was visiting the New Haven ashram. So I would go for weekends. It wasn't a formal arrangement, but I would go visit. So I had started my introduction into 3HO. Um, Like there was a health food store down the street. Seems so minor, but I remember such a treat. My getting a tiger's milk bar and a Wagyu (laughs) chew, and being so excited. And this may seem odd. I just... I actually, at that young age, when you would see a woman in full bono with the flowing tunic, I thought it was so beautiful. So like I did princess. It was yeah. Like princessy to me. Mm-hmm. Yes. I remember. Yeah. Yeah. So I never really, I didn't hate going to the ashram. It wasn't like I was trauma bound going there at all. I thought it was quite an adventure. Um, but there was the dynamic between my mom and dad. And through that time, my dad moved to Dorchester. So I was to, again, I can't even imagine putting my son on a two and a half hour Greyhound bus at five years old, but they did. And off I would go from Connecticut to Dorchester. And um, again, a day, a memory. I'm like you mentioned, I'm sitting in first grade. I'm in my little uniform and my father's face is at the door. And he just took me. (laughs) Um, And it's the middle of the school day. And I stayed in Dorchester from there on out. So he had moved to Dorchester by that point. And um, my mom uh, somehow got there. These are not questions you ask at that age. You don't ask why mom got there. You just know also in a weird way you go, okay, mom and dad are together. Yay. Um, So even though my father had punched her, I'm like my mom and dad are together. I, in hindsight, God, I can't imagine the pain my mom was going through. This man who physically abused her and what she was divorced from. child. Yeah, steals her child, goes and lives with this group of people who are protecting him. Now, did they ever, and here's me. And, and, and I'll, I just want to speak to what Please. we now know that it, it, many uh, instances like this of children, single mothers, right? Yeah. Where there was uh, divorces and the amount of, weaponry and weaponizing um, and support and hiding of, of abusers in 3HO that, right. that, that, you know, YB was a predator and, right. you know, and he was an abuser and he then upheld that and the culture of that, you know, and that, it, right. that it, what your dad is talk did and what your mom had to follow suit to, you know, the, normalcy of it that there's many stories i know many are hearing this and and i want you to hear this in her story because it's it really speaks to the ethos of 3ho that's beneath the surface 
Yeah, it speaks to the ethos of tolerance. And I mean, Silence. we don't, right. We don't ask questions when a kid just shows up. Um, so my mom joined and she moved into the Dorchester ashram. And I do recall that at one point they weren't rooming together. Then they were in a room together. There was different houses. I mean, we were juggled around like just juggling balls. Um, I will say though, I've always wanted to say this out loud and I don't know if they would even be listening. What I do, there are many things I remember about Dorchester that are also very positive as much as there are many things that are scary. And in Dorchester, and I apologize, my dog is drinking water, of course, right next to me. Um, in Dorchester, the Mahans and the Gurcharns and the Grishabas were the heads of ashram. I don't know if all three were unilateral, if it was together, I don't really know what the politics of it were. But what I wanna say is that the Mahans and the Gurcharans up until my mom died, they were so kind to my mother. And I know that they were, by that point, people could see, because again, my father's anger was directed at my mother. You could see, I mean, my father stalked my mother until she died and they had been divorced 40 years. He would sit outside where she worked until he died watching her. They could see it wasn't normal. It was obsessive. And I think a lot of people, and my mother was very, very, very sweet. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of people started to understand the dynamic and that began the process of how do we protect Ramsarn? How do we protect Utma? Um, but at the same time, this is at least what it feels like now, keep our numbers because he's mm. staying. What we, I mean, I, in hindsight, they couldn't kick him out. Um, and my that's where I also in Dorchester started to, we were separated. So my mom was my mom. My dad was my dad or Mata and Papa, because I'm starting to change their names, but there's group mentality. Um, I can remember the bathroom where we're lined up every day for sadna, for cold shoulders, for cold showers, excuse me. And we're then all brought together to the same breakfast as children. We're all put in the same van to Adyarigame, and then we head off to Montessori school together. So there was already this starting of separation where the parenting was more of a group think. And my mom seems to be asking permission to participate in my life, which was very difficult because my father joined 3HO because he believed in it. My mother joined 3HO to stay close to me. She didn't believe in it. <laughs> and my mom was one to ask questions. Um, she started working at the Golden Temple in um, Cambridge and she had, you know, quickly became, had friends. Again, the Mahans, the Gurcharn, she had, she had friends. My father did not make those same connections. I mean, they couldn't have been more different people. But going back to the cold shoulder sh showers, I early on, unfortunately, developed a appetite for defiance. And I would always try to go last because by then... The woman who was showering us was distracted, toweling off other children, and I could just nudge the warm water on, just nudge. Um, I always got caught. She gradually caught on to me, and I remember her feeling the bottom of the tub one day, <laughs> and you could feel that it was just a little too not ice cold. Um, so therefore, I learned early too, don't react, shut up. Um, because the quieter I was, the more I could get away with in avoiding some of these disciplines that were being put on us. Um, don't go last, go sec, go weave yourself in the middle. 
um, because also if you are caught, the discipline was you had a longer cold shower. Um, and that's something that carried forward into Española. So in Dorchester, here's me, you know, you're seeing huge pictures of YB and, you know, he's everywhere, but he's not a person to me yet. He, he might as well have been, I mean, I used to love the Brady Bunch. He might as well have been Greg from the Brady Bunch for all I knew. He was just this celebrity. <laughs> um, and there was a particular incident where my father in the Dorchester ashram threw my mother down a flight of stairs. Um, if I recall, as I understood it, because again, they're divorced, there was a start of trying to get my mother to um, be with another person. And he threw her down this flight of stairs and her he ripped her turban off her head. I'm at the bottom of the stairs and there's two women holding me. I don't know who the people involved are. And my father starts choking my mother with her turban in front of me, in front of all of us. And these men are trying to pull him off. And the rage my father feels when he is in a mode to, to hurt you. My father was very physically strong. He boxed, he prided himself on boxing. And ultimately, and I have no sense of time here, all I know is what felt like the next day, and it couldn't have been, I was in Española. My mom was in Los Angeles. Because- After that throwing yeah. of the stairs? Yes. You're kidding. Right, so again, that I don't happens know. in the ashram, right? You, you yes. don't know the actual, I get it. Was it, it weeks? Be- was it days? I don't know. I do believe it was the catalyst. But wow, whatever it was, the next yeah. thing you remember- is what you're saying is yes. you're in New Mexico. I'm in New Mexico. And your mom's I'm, in and LA. I, and my mom's in LA. Wow. Um, wow. Why? And so who orchestrated that? I don't know, but I'm grateful. Because again, in hindsight, crazy. But I've always said this. For me, for my circumstance, I believe that if my father had not joined 3HO, I believe he would have killed my mother. He would have gotten there. My life would be very, very, very different. And it's, so there, I think I say this to qualify for all of the things that we're discussing. I think there were also some really good people who also were navigating this whole thing of like, well, I'm in charge of an ashram and I, I inherited a crazy person. Yeah. What the hell do I do with this? Yeah, <laughs> what do I sure do with exactly? it? <laughs> I, so who was head of the, the Dorchester ashram? You're saying it was Mahans. And I and think it was the Mahans, Gurcharns and Gershubids. But again, I, I really don't. So whoever don't, that people. I mean, yeah, I, I don't know if the Mahans really were, but I really do believe because Gurcharn Singh was a pretty major player. And so was Gershubid Singh. Um, so I really don't know where the Mahans fit in that. But I felt like at the time they were fairly up. Because again, I'm, we weren't Hindus, but let's be real. There was a caste system. <laughs> well, there was definitely a caste system. And you're yeah. speaking to who, yeah, who was in charge in whatever region. And somebody yeah. listening to this is going to know that answer. So you right. can comment on it and fill in the blank if you hear, you know, some part of the story right. that you want to fill in. Um, but 
you're right, right? That, that there's really good hearted people yes. dealing with disasters and crazy people. And then when you said, I don't know who orchestrated that. Well, we absolutely know who orchestrated it. I we, think so. I be the predator. Absolutely. Yeah orchestrated that because what does Ed Ashram, Ashram Head do? And Ashram Head calls whoever the heck they got a call to reach YB. Right. And now they might have their senior secretary that they got a call based on their regional area. But right. either way, they get a hold of their senior person who then reaches YB. And right. suddenly you're in New Mexico, your mom's in LA. And guarantee there's no resolution that happens in Dorchester. Nobody addresses yeah. it. Nobody talks about it. If you're lucky, there's a meditation that happens, but no, nah, no, nah, yeah. no. Nah. They just move right along and keep it moving. And your dad right. obviously stays a member of the ashram for the next several decades until he dies. He does. It ends up being a haven for a lot of real lunatics that aren't getting proper mental health. Right. Right. That's a big deal. I mean, my father um, ushered himself out to different ashrams. So when Dorchester became Millis, I know my father ended up in Millis because my father always considered Millis his home. Like if he was to say that's where where he wanted to always be, it would have been Millis. But and we'll get to this later as well. My father ultimately, because, again, I get ranch access, moves to New Mexico and starts and then I moved to L.A. So there's bumps, there's bumps in the system where absolutely to your point, people who had, who had the opportunity to make change and move the people around because we were moved around. We all were the adults, the children, it was a game of chess and, and it was a game of chess that was based on so many factors of what could you do for somebody? How could you contribute to this ashram? What were your financial means? There was just such a system that I, you know, was there a board someplace of people? Um, Because once he got to New Mexico, I then bumped again. So there was definitely years ahead right now. So I want you to years ahead, but there was a group. My point is, is there's definitely was to your point of the phone calls. There's a group of people who knew, who knew who the crazy violent people were. Absolutely. And why we knew. And YB knew, and he absolutely used, you know, just let them roam, just like he let the pedophiles roam. Yes, exactly. And these things were were things that, you know, the ashram heads, well-meaning, compassionate, quote, hearted people didn't listen to their own guidance system and instead listen to YB thinking he had it figured out. But really what he had was he had unleashed other predators that were matched and modeling him in this really sociopathic way. And right. we're now hearing how sociopathic, you know, like even Suzanne Jordan's um, testimony of her abuse, you know, and the, you know, all these things like the amount of a husband um, protectors, you know, or beaters, wife beaters that were protected and the stories that have come out since 2020 of that, you know, I had no idea, you know, I didn't come from abuse. I I mean, hearing what you're talking about, witnessing your father, punch your mom in the face, throw your mom down a flight of stairs, you know, to have that level of violence happen in an ashram setting, you know, can you imagine like Sadna, you're meditating Satanama and then 
this this man in in full bona garb and i'm sure he's got the kirpan strap always the full garb you know and he's like a violent man but what do the yeah. ashrams do like my father was an ashram head they didn't do anything they hid right. they hid the violence they hid the pedophiles they didn't say anything because that's what yb taught and everybody's right. teach so it's wow the gravity of that and that's before you even end up in the guardian program darcy yes I'm not even in Espanola yet. <laughs> like we haven't even gotten to she's, you know, seven and been sent to the to the guardians. Um, but you know, in speaking to the Millis and the Dorchester ashram people, you know, there are a lot of people up in that ashram where you know have, have witnessed violence that has never yeah. been metabolized, spoken to, acknowledged, even, you know. Yeah. And so to hear that these things happen to your mom and that other people would witness his stalking behavior all these years and that so many of us just stayed silent letting these things go on and and that same story existed in another ashram and in another ashram and in another ashram yeah and i think again i think that there were so many kind people who attempted to compensate because they didn't know how to handle it you know i mean you think your spiritual teachers handling it right like I, being in dorchester sat Pavan was there with me and we were two children together. And her mom was one of those people who compensated. She was so lovely. There were so many, there are, don't even say were, there are so many people who have great hearts in this. Yeah. And I think that that's also part of where some of us feel so guilty, Double. weird, because it's hard to reconcile the good with the extreme of the bad. Exactly. And that all of it was actually happening and that we actually yeah. just kind of, it's like a double bind inside. Exactly. You don't have, because they're the only way that you've been able to sustain it is by looking at the good. And, and right. that obviously means you can't look at the bad because it's quite bad. Right. Well, and then you feel guilty. And on top of it, and we'll talk about this because I think this is where more New Mexico for me. So being, you know, when I got to New Mexico, children's camp, and you've heard, we've all heard the stories of children's camp. It is we not the children's all camp. We haven't heard the story. Oh, we Go haven't? Ahead. No, share them away. <laughs> Come on. That's what you're here for. That's what you're Okay. Here. I mean, the children's camp is most assuredly not the YMCA camp I sent my kid to. Um, it was, it, it, it was just like chaos. Um, it was a survivalist mentality. I mean, children's camp and school in Española, a bulk of our time was in, again, I'm going to use the word disciplines, extreme running, extreme shooting guns, gudka, um, horseback riding. And I still ride to this day, but it's not about horseback riding because of the joy of nature like I do now. <laughs> it was about preparing it was about how unique we are and we had to be ready and ready for the war. And it was a survivalist thing. I mean, I've always said that when I remember watching when David Koresh was on, when his compound was on fire and I, my ex-husband was with me and I, I started tearing up a little, I guess. And he said, it, he said, it's going to They're going to be fine. The FBI is going to get them. And I just looked at him and I said, no, they'll die for him. And I couldn't understand why the FBI didn't get it <laughs> because I would have, we all would have, we all would have died for him. And we were being trained to die for him. 
We were being readied for it. We were hungry. We weren't learning to weave crochet things or paint. <laughs> we were playing our, our games that we played were not normal. I mean, I remember the first time I got knocked on my ass shooting a semi-automatic gun that was way too big for me. How old and were I you? was probably eight-ish. Wow. Um, and you had talked about being eight in, in a semi-auto web. I remember hearing about that, but I wasn't one of those kids. Yeah. And I, I really truly didn't understand. I get, again, like, I think from what I'm understanding is this didn't continue into the 2000s. Well, I know it didn't continue into the 2000s because my friend's kids would, would have never allowed their kids to go through that same experience ever. Um, but we were eating the same meal every day. It was oranges and bananas for breakfast. It was mung beans for dinner. And you hoped the right person cooked it. Um, you got, yogi, we had yogi tea. It was all served in a big white trough bucket. We were sat down as if, you know, in our rows on the, on the floor and food was in a big trough bucket and it was hot. We were not, I mean, we were malnourished. We were just left to our own devices. Capture the flag games could have gone on for hours and we just disappeared. It's not like there were adults taking care of us. There were adults who checked in on us. And then again, the bizarre imbalance of every morning, starting with the sunshine song <laughs> as we all got woken up. <laughs> um, but again, at the time, I can't tell you it seemed like anything other than the most amazing adventure of my life. As I had my own son and he's those, he's that age. I start to connect. Oh, you know, as I'm writing him letters at camp, as I'm calling him, <laughs> as I am checking in and sending care packages and we were hungry. Um, so it was just, you were hungry. Do you mean you were like actually hungry? Yeah. I mean, for me, if you look at pictures of me, at least I'm gaunt. Um, I'm hungry. You're, you're not sleeping enough. It started the period of the years where I don't think at again, I can't say everybody. I did not sleep enough. When you wake mm. up for sadhana every day at 3am, 3.30am and you do sadhana, then you do meditation. I mean, sorry, you do yoga. Then you do sadhana, then you do meditation, then you go to prayer, then you, know, then you eat, then you do crazy levels of physical activity that are not proportionate to the calorie intake. You are, I mean, if you were to read a cult book, that's the start, the signs of brainwashing. Mm. You are conditioned to have this routine and this discipline. But again, at the time, I would tell you it was the best adventure of my life. Absolutely. Loved mm -hmm. it. Having fun. Great. Did not like the food, but other than now that. That's it. You're speaking to children's camp. Are you speaking yes. at all to um, like your daily life in New Mexico? Well, then that's what became the daily life in New Mexico. So from that children's camp um, that you're talking about. Yes. It just so we're assigned and my first guardians, um, I was um, I won't name them. They were very nice people. I think they were unprepared to have three girls live with them in a room. <laughs> I don't, I wonder if they were asked in hindsight. Um, she has reached out to me in the past couple of years. She's reached out to one of the other girls I lived with. Um, I lived with Navjiwan and Sirikar. Oh, wow. And um, we shared a room. Um, my bed was here. Sirikar's was here. Navjiwan's was over here. And 
you know, again, like, were they prepared to have three girls all of a sudden under 10 years old who, or under 12, because Siri Carr's a little older than me. And um, I don't know. They were kind. They tried. They did. But we were all put onto the same discipline. And we were all put into this school that I likened to Little House on the Prairie. Mm. Um, it was a mail order school. And we were in a room. But yet a couple people, just a couple, one or two, were allowed to go to real school and going to schools within the town. Um, I think it was because I think it was because they were both older. And I don't know if the block system that we were in was created for high schooling. Um, but same thing there. So I think for me, that's where I started to have really powerful physical restrictions because myself, we were all the same age being held to the same expectation. And the first half of our school day was physical activity where we would alternate every day between a sprint that um, Dada and Sinankar would always win. <laughs> but then you've got Dada and I trying to keep up and we're like, yay big compared to yay big. And it was just, but the expectations were the same. We would run through the desert holding fake guns, singing, we are the Khalsa, like all these military things over and over and over and over. And I'm talking like seven, eight, nine miles. It felt like 50 to me because again, I'm yay big. Um, I was always last. I have a cleft palate. I don't have a roof in my mouth. I had one that was uh, kind of sort of created, but it's not full. I really struggle breathing in those circumstances. That did not matter. In between sadhana and school, um, depending on the guardian you had, some had guardians where you didn't get this, some didn't. There were heavy chores. We rode horses, um, but we were, it was all different based on who we went home with, what that looked like. Mm. Um, so again, my first guardians, they were very kind people. And again, I think they tried. I think they tried their absolute best. And for me, the positive side was I was on one of, I was in one of the trailers that was um, on the ranch, but with the horses. So that is where for me, my life changed because I found horses <laughs> and they saved me. They having horses having, and I can still list all of their names. I had to ride the pony cause I was tiny, but having mud the pony and um, was brilliant, but we weren't riding with riding helmets. We weren't riding with proper gear. I have a big chunk out of my leg from Ricky kicking me and taking a, I mean, a chunk was taken out of my leg. Um, Ricky hurt Siri car. Ricky should not have been ridden by children, but it, it was what it was. And no matter what happened and any injuries that incurred it at those ages is when we were taught you do not complain. You do not cry. You do not react. If you react, whatever run you had happens again. If you cry, the 100 squat thrusts into the 100 setups into the 100 push-ups becomes do it again. So at this early age, we were conditioned to not react. And I know that in the conversations we've all had on the Zoom calls the past few years, that seems to be a fairly common theme. 
And it is a theme that did not serve me well my entire life to this day. I don't react. And I can joke about it and say I'm who you want in a zombie apocalypse because I'm cool as a cucumber. But it also then you learn to not feel because to not react, you have to condition yourself to not feel. And you have to condition yourself to not miss your mom. You have to condition yourself to not cry. And to do that, you break yourself down gradually, day by day by day. And again, I did not realize what I was doing to myself until a decade later in high school. Um, so to me, that's what Española did to us. That was probably the worst thing was it conditioned us not to feel. Well, to me, I'm hearing it as this, like the microcosm of the original formula, so to speak, you know, it was kids, the ones in this like early New Mexico incubator and what other children incubators in other ashrams too. I think Phoenix had a children incubator ashram Mm -hmm. and there were other incubator ashrams that were trading in this, what you're talking about, this militaristic way. Right. Um, and like you're talking about this conditioning to not feel, to not react, to not need anything, basically. To not need. Yes. You, um, you don't, you don't, you learn to not find comfort. And then unfortunately, yeah. when you do find comfort, you're finding comfort in perhaps not the best way. Well, um, because inadvertently you're being trained to allow abuse and, yeah. and that abusers are actually shielded in this environment. And those who speak out are actually abused, um, are actually right. shamed. And so you're learning the, the mode of operandi and being a young person at that age. And you're talking about some other young people that I know, Sirikar and, and, and whomever there, there are other people that speak to the, that early guardianship time. And I've yet to hear about what you're talking about though. Like the, the, the horse, the, the time with the horses. I remember being a younger kid coming to children's camp and kind of having envy of that access to the ranch where certain people knew the horse by name. Like you're speaking to Ricky. Like I know who Ricky is (laughs) and I don't know who Ricky is. (laughs) Well, some people do, but many people don't. Ricky is one of the horses that was on the ranch. And there are other horses that people got to know and that young girls and other young men uh, grew up with and hearing a glimpse into this stage of your story is so fascinating in that way, because the, the level of everydayness mm-hmm. of what it meant to live with the heads of the ashram or to live where a part of your daily school routine is to go over to the ranch and yada, yada. Like right. when, when that becomes your normal landscape and then hundreds, if not thousands of people come into New Mexico for two months of the year and think it's the most, you know, greatest thing since sliced bread in their spiritual universe. Yes. And y'all have been there. Y'all are kind of like, yo, like this is the circus for two months. It, oh, 100%. Do with these 100%. People? So I just want <laughs> listeners to hear that because a lot of what Darcy speaks to is the normalcy. Right of just everyday life of being, she's speaking to the training, the indoctrination that's beneath the teachings. Yeah. Because what the kids got at that stage of what you're talking about is kind of like what the whole kind of 
teaching system got built on top of. Mm -hmm. And literally, I remember being a young child kind of witnessing how ashrams would get things like learning to use guns or mm -hmm. or other types of diets. Right. So these yeah. things kind of became the incubator in New Mexico and then spread out to the other ashram heads for them to be incubated through other. Yeah. And it's interesting so, because to your point, it's I, it did not, I don't even know if it occurred to everybody else, but it most assuredly did not occur to me. It was so normal to see Yogi Bhajan. It was so normal when I moved into the Waigurus to see him. And we'll talk about that in a minute. It was so normal for the secretaries to be rolling by in their full bana. And other people came in a caravan to just have the opportunity to literally kiss his feet. Meanwhile, all I wanted to do, so he had this white horse, Shana Shah. It was his. She was a Peruvian, it was a Peruvian Paso. Amazing. And he also had a black stallion. These were the two horses that were very specifically his. He would ride Shana Shah. And all I wanted was to ride that horse. <laughs> like that was my life goal. <laughs> and um, I ultimately got to, right? Like I got to ride his horse more than once. And who knew that was a big deal? I didn't. I wanted to ride the horse. I didn't care that it was his. I used to feed his stallion watermelon. I would literally sit on the ground and feed the stallion watermelon. And this is, you know, a few hundred feet from the ranch house. It was just so normal to all of us to be there. And I, I clarify, I apologize, because I've learned some stories. Maybe not all of us. Even within Española, there were the haves and the haves nots. And I was placed again in a house in a trailer on the ranch. And then my next one was I, and I don't know why I was moved, but I was moved to the Wagaroos. And there I lived with Sarah Narankar. And they had the house, and we had, a, he and I had a little trailer to the right of the house that we lived in. It was a house wow. adjacent. Um, and that's wow. when. All so the you two are living. Changed. You two are living in the in the uh, tray in the uh, trailer next to the house, like an RV Rogers. size. So it's not like a full scale. Yeah. So yeah, like one, one of those kind of mini one. ones. Yeah, okay, it wasn't it. So like huge, a... but it wasn't small either. Um, I mean, you know, he had his space. I had my space. I understood. And and um, then they and their kids lived in the house. But there it. was Who... it was a whole. Uh, it was fenced off. There was like there was goats. Um, their Rottweiler Maharani lived there. I mean, it was a, it was a little compound within a compound. <laughs> Did they live right on the ladies camp grounds? No, they oh. lived, we lived, um, where the Gudwara is right now. And their Got house it. is still there. Their house. I just, I recently saw it. Um, and we were just across the parking lot. Like we were right there. Got it. And, and you know, okay, go ahead. it was interesting because guests would come of YB. They would stay with us in our home, um, in their home. And YB wanted to go to the movie and Wagyu Singh was one of the main people who would always go. And so I'd go too. And I mean, I, he, and Wagyu Singh, I would sit on his lap and literally, I thought I was driving the car, but I would steer <laughs> going to Albuquerque to pick him up at the airport. Every trip we went to the, we went to every airport pickup. Um, and, but they're also being the heads of the ashram, and I don't know if this is why or how the discipline became more disciplined. Um, 
Mia would speak to that. I, I took over for Gertesh. And what do you mean as a kid? She, she left. Yeah, she left. And I, it was like, I filled her spot. As a kid. So she, there was a kid, a kid there and then you came yes. in. It's just, it's yes. wrong card. so just so that listeners are following this, like different kids, right. Are being placed in different people's homes and we're and, being bounced. Exactly. Absolutely. And so you're saying a kid, Gertej, and again, we don't necessarily know who these people are, but you're speaking to right. another young person um, yes. that got moved. And then you came in to fill that spot right. and things start getting more rigid in terms of what you have yeah, to our do, expectations. Fulfill, what you have to yeah. fulfill. And what age again are you here? I'm probably about nine so when I move nine, in with them. You know, the fact that there's even these like expectations that you have to fulfill at nine to live yes. somewhere is like the gravity, the emotional weight of that for me right now. I know that strength you talk about, that strength of not needing anything, of not feeling anything. And it's amazed me how good I've became at that. Yeah. And so to yeah. hear you talk about such early training, you know, again, you were representative of the kids that were an earlier foundation to the foundation that I received, right? Because right, I'm a different right. generation of a generation. So anyways, keep going, please. Yeah, I mean, we, we in hindsight, we, we were the guinea pigs. Um, you know, how far could he push our parents? How, who was and was not a good guardian? I mean, I genuinely believe that there was behind the scenes machinations to determine what worked, what didn't work. Um, I re this sounds silly, but I, just, again, series of memories. I remember, because um, ladies camp would come and go, right? But to your point, for us, it was like a wave of women coming and a wave of women leaving. Um, because and then by that on circus, you know, where circus. everybody hoopla's around and your normal everyday life gets disturbed. Yes. And, yes. and, you know, just being a kid in an ashram that we had to move out when YB came, you know, right. so the hoopla that would happen when YB came and yet that's your everyday normal, but other people would come in and, and your environment, right. Um, is the place where everybody circles to come and see him. And yet it becomes 100%. a little bit of your um, kind of everyday background noise. It is. It's every, it was everyday background noise, but again, I'm not sure that was equitable because again, at our age, it's not like we discussed it. It's not well, like we had a parallel of, Oh, Uma is going here. So-and-so is going here. So-and-so is going here. No, I don't think it was at all strategic. And I think he was actually dysregulating the adults purposely. And it mm -hmm. was an entire, you know, just fuckery experiment is what it was. It on was a fuckery lives. experiment. And, and mm -hmm. to your credit of what you said, not everybody had a normalizing experience. Some people had terror every day yeah. of their existence that they were living in New Mexico away Correct. from their parents. And we have to really keep this, this, detached guardianship thing in perspective because those yes. of us that grew up in 3HO you know it's the normalcy of it you know I remember being 9 10 11 thinking it would be absolutely normal if I got sent to live with somebody in LA right I thought that was a normal part of my existence I thought it was a great part of my existence uh -huh. I thought it was a special part of my existence right so hearing what you're saying as kind of this early experimental phase that your generation really went through that really speaks to the solidification of relationship 
that is so unique among your generation that I think is different than many. Uh, yeah. And I could be wrong on that, but I, it's just my kind of outside yeah. lens. I don't um, think you're wrong, Gurnishan. I mean, again, because I look at, because again, I stayed involved enough my whole life. I, there were things that the first generation went second generation and we are genuinely our parents 100% placed us in this situation completely yeah. and <laughs> and also the exaltation that happened at your uh, of the kids so there's right. a real power dynamic that that exchange and Darcy's going to bring some gens around this but the power dynamic around here at nine or 10, this little child is being expected to kind of earn their way in this place that you're being a guest, but really you should just be taken care of. And the fact that you're now learning the normalcy of just kind of making your way. Um, and again, the Wagyu is probably busy as shit, you know, being yeah, they were. Their heads and doing all yeah. the things. So, you know, here they were burdened with not just their own kids, but other kids and moving around. And again, we're now knowing why B did these things purposely, dysregulating kids and adults so that everybody turned to him. Right. And, you know, did they, did they ask for me? I, I no. you know, I doubt it. I have no idea. The answer but I no. do know that, you know, I... Each one of us, each one of us children in our own way, again, we'd been ripped, ripped, taken, given, depends on which one of our parents you would talk to, right? Um, away from our parentals. And at the end of the day, what trauma did that cause subconsciously? How, how hard must it have been to try to parent us? But then some people had really, really abusive guardians, people who had no business, having a child in their life, let alone their home. Um, mm. There was no screening. There was no vetting. It was, here's a kid of five. <laughs> and some were interested, some were not. And the range and the scope of what that did to us as a whole mm. is just, it's traumatizing. I mean, it, mm. it's absolutely traumatizing. You know, I moved into an incredibly disciplined, chore-bound, rigid home when I moved in with them. Mm. Um, I, I remember the necessity and I don't want to justify it because I think of my own self as a parent and I wouldn't, but the necessity of perfection that must be expected if you're the heads of ashram. So, and I'm not necessarily, I was not the most compliant child. <laughs> um, I, I came clearly from an abusive marriage. I was not one to necessarily follow rules easily. And I remember, for example, like I said, with the cold showers, I would always try to find little ways to get around things, which um, meant that it would then be overpushed. Um, I remember being in their bedroom and being forced to hold yoga poses perfectly hmm. for just ever because I wouldn't, couldn't, I didn't have interest in yoga. I still don't. I've never been the person who's like, let me go take a yoga class. <laughs> um, I never found joy in it. I found joy in meditation. I did not find joy in yoga. And I therefore didn't try. And I didn't, I just didn't have the desire to be a, to follow and care. But because of that, it was a double down and a triple down of she will do these poses correctly. Hmm. She will represent is how it felt at the time. So you're just broken piece by piece. You're broken. 
And when you're eight, nine, 10 years old, or some of my older friends, possibly 11, 12, 13, when you're starting to try to have crushes, um, I'll say this comfortably because he and I joke about it. I would like, I, I called Ditta my first boyfriend for Ditta. Uh, we were the tender age of eight. I loved him dearly. And um, if it was discovered that you had a crush on somebody, ooh, the world ended. Uh, we were not to have feelings towards the opposite sex. And I'm not using my situation with him. We were too young. But I remember watching older friends um, be attracted to somebody, want to kiss somebody, want to be with somebody. It was squashed, killed, and destroyed with intention and vitriol and shame for daring to have attraction to somebody else. And then the engagement started. You do you, you do you, you do you. And that was all that, man. Just the random assignment as if some level of control could happen to our ability or desire to want to be attracted to who we were actually naturally attracted to. Who in the mother of the universe engages children at 12, 13, 14 years old? Oh yeah, the head of a cult does. You're saying the engagement started at what what years with this? What? Well, I was 13 when he engaged me. What? Yeah. So I don't, I that again, that's where I don't have clear memories exactly. But we were all early, early teenage years before when, and it wasn't everybody, just some people. And it seemed to be starting, it evolved. Because <laughs> hmm. he was already matchmaking parents like Reverend Moon, right? Hmm. Like just you do you, you do you. There was no r- rhythm to it. Um, mass weddings. And, um, then it was us. (laughs) I remember there was this weird thing that you had to have a five-year age difference. So by the way, I was 13 engaged to an 18 year old. I'm sure he was thrilled. Um, (laughs) like it was, and at the time it just didn't even seem crazy. Doesn't that seem crazy? (laughs) What's, what's, what I want to name is the normalcy of it for me. Right. You know, like you've spoken to this before, but the familiarity that we experience when we're speaking to other kids that grew up like us is kind of like, oh, yeah, you know, and yet these things aren't normal. Like, what? And it's taken me so long to kind of unsnap from these these kind of false veils of of seeing. And that's one of them. Like dating has taught me how much it it means to grow up in an arranged marriage culture where things become normalized and feelings don't. And it's, it's so convoluted. And so, well, and being attracted to somebody gives you guilt. And there's, it's so natural. It's so natural to have feelings. And so to be met with shame and um, or consequence met with consequence, Consequence. I think is probably one of the bigger words. I agree. If you were attracted or had a crush on somebody, which is so natural, so natural, there might be a consequence where that person was then engaged to somebody else. And quickly, right? Quickly. Like so yeah. quickly. So the repercussions, it's a form of a manipulative gaslighting. So, Correct. so a feeling you have is then met with consequence. And then there's a form right. of shaming that happens that makes you then feel like, you know, that it's your fault. And then you realize, oh, don't feel, don't have right. needs, yep. don't, don't express, and don't, don't show react, it. don't react, don't show yes. it. Do yes. not show it. If you feel something for somebody, do not show it. Oh my God. 
God, if you feel it really impeded all, my dating life. <laughs> I cannot agree with you more. The amount of deep conditioning that this yes. sets in. And I mean, you're speaking to in hindsight of the of the cult indoctrination, but at the time, right. it just feels unique and the special story uh-huh. that's attached to it around yes. helping to usher in the Aquarian age and that we need to be ready for yes. this time when yes. things are going to get so crazy and we need to know how to use guns and, and yes. these things do make sense in some story, right? And so mm-hmm. that part to use that as a part of our belonging and be- link to each other is such a, um, a convoluted bind. Well, and then that's where I still go back to one of the things I said a while back, which is, this is why this is the only group of people I don't edit with. I don't, I'm not guarded Mm. and I breathe because I, it's not like you're supposed to explain any of this, but when you're talking to people who you meet post 3HO and you can't reference things or they talk about something which makes you pause because your experience is not the same. And it just gradually compounds until you realize the implications of what being raised in a cult does to you. And I was actually even thinking to myself, I remember this sounds so, it sounds weird to me. I know I and my friends used to make fun of the Hare Krishnas. <laughs> like they were such a cult. And we'd be at the airport all dressed in white, kissing his feet, but they were the crazy ones. <laughs> Like we really believed we weren't a cult. They were a cult. They were nuts with their little ponytails and their little outfits. We were beautiful. We were warriors. And we believed it. We, and there are people still who believe it. Many people. If my father were alive, he and I would still be having this battle, which we had until he died. Yeah. So from, from there, gradually India happened, the manifestation of India. Um, and I can, am, can I pause you before you do that? Yeah. I, wonder, I wonder if you can give us the landscape of, of, um, maybe this is it. Maybe this is the landscape. So you're there with, um, there are, are there other kids that are living in New Mexico too, in other Tons. guardianships? Yes. So how many total would you say are in the, I, I think I get this number wrong. I do. Um, I think it was about 25, 35 of us that are like it in wasn't... different, uh, staying in different yeah. households or some yes. staying at who's actually living at the ranch or with YB himself. At that point, there were no kids at the ranch. Okay. So it's just the secretary people. Yeah. The sec- and it, So OG secretaries too. Yeah. Okay. I mean, it's just the original tribe. Okay. Um, and- there were not, he had, he did that changed after India started because somebody migrated in. But um, at that point, I don't remember any children specifically living at the ranch. Got it. Okay. Um, so the ranch who's was. A, who's actually there at the time? Can you speak to the people that are there? In New Mexico? Yeah. Like at the ranch that are like surrounding him. Who, who are the main people that surround him? That's what's weird. I, it's, I can tell you the name of every single horse and I can't tell you the name of every single person. Okay. I'm serious. I can name every horse that I that was at that ranch, but I can't name the people. And that's my own. The two say, well done. Well done. On yeah. That. <laughs> Thank you. Um, <laughs> the only secretary that, I mean, Kartapur, let me clarify. Kartapurik was there. 
as the youngest. She wasn't a secretary. I'm, I'm air quoting. She, she was wasn't a, a secretary though, right? yet. Yeah. She wasn't a secretary yet. But she also wasn't our age. She was 17, probably 17 to 19. That's not like I ever asked her. Um, but she, by this point, as they're heading to India, she's already on the ranch. Um, and how old her sister you was on the ranch. Her sister's on the ranch. Her sister's Guru Amrit. Yes. And that's one of the secretaries. And then. And um, the secretaries came and went because they were back and forth between Los Angeles and Espanola. They it. all were. I mean, it was a back and forth constantly. So it's and, not like all of them lived on the ranch. No, because everybody had duties. People were actually Correct. doing things. And yes. so we're talking about Premco. We're talking about Seth Simran. We're talking about. Premco had her house, though. So place. Okay. yeah, she had her, she had her little casa. Um, so it was the, the property is the ranch. Then there's space. Then there's the side house. Then there's Premka's house. Then there's a slope down. There's the horses. And then there's the three trailers, which is where Siri car and Avjiwan and I lived when we first got there, there was one in the middle. I don't know who lived there. And then Hadi was at the end trailer with somebody else. Right. So how do you, the sister is in your own car? Yes. Got it. Okay. And both of them were sent young. I, I don't know what age they were sent to New Mexico. They were, I, I really like, it's not like there was this welcome party. <laughs> right, people just kind of got sent. And the right, thing is, like, is that, I, that's so true. Some people like came from Phoenix and then yeah. to Denver and, you know, being a kid being sent, it's just got to be discombobulated. You don't even know where you're at and with no. whom and what. It's got to just And be it's crazy. before social media. So like hypothetically, you know, not even hypothetically. So I go down from children's camp and I'm just living there now. And, and but you I don't know who you know because you only right. know the kids 100%. from whatever children's camp. It's not like you know Bingo. anyone. I don't know and who was there kids. before me. I don't know who's lived here, exactly. how long. And we don't There's ask. It's not a network of relationships There's not a network. yet. This is just right. how it works. Okay. So you're how old when uh, kids start getting sent to India in like 1984? No. 82. 82. So I found this for my mother, which would be jarring for many people. Okay, and I'm going to read you the letter, not the whole thing, because it's three pages, I but it. I want to read you the three main paragraphs that are the three first paragraphs of this letter that our parents received of the announcement of the education program in India, May 1982. Satnam, dear ones. So pause. Hold on. Let's just yes. properly set this up. Okay. So here we are, the kids, there's a bunch of kids that have been living in New Mexico and different residences. There's a bunch and of around kids the country, living all the country, yep. all around yep. the country. Phoenix Ashram was a big incubator yep. program. You should look at some of the early, um, uh, what is that pamphlet that was put out? The, um, I'll get back to that folks. There was the, the, uh, the early write-ups of these programs. So what she's about okay. to read here is basically the announcement to yes. setting up this new India program. So here there are, imagine kids all across the nation living all sorts of, and they've been being trained for the excitement of something to come, which is the India program. Right. So it says, Satnam, dear ones, this letter is to inform our Sikh Dharma 3HO family about the program of education available to our children through Guru Nanak 5th century centenary school in India. Let me begin by sharing some statements made by the Siri Singh Sab in Gudwara, July 5th, 1981, Española. And this is now a direct quote from his lecture. It is my duty to warn you that you are getting a little neurotic as far as your children are concerned. They are not growing in the way I had hoped. Children are supposed to grow. You are shadowing and shading them with your personalities, dwarfing them in their personalities, and using them as levers in your relationships. 
It is very wrong to use these innocent children in such a way. I am glad that some children are fortunate enough to be going to India. They will be gone for two or three years to understand the world, its beauty, and its education. There will be no more peer pressure on them. The school is beautiful, the environments are wonderful, and they will be happier there than here. How fortunate these children are. Can you believe how the hand of Guru is acting to bless them? One million kisses cannot make a child a man, but one word of wisdom can change his fate. It is a dream come true. I have tolerated you so that the children you bear could be educated in the real essence of life. These children will become the messengers of God and Guru and will show this earth a righteous path by their living examples. The description, which is also important, says, at present, we have 40 children attending school there, grades one through 10. So it's possible this letter is the year after a few people had gone over. Several of our children have been there for two years and 75 others for nine months. That must, so this is the second wave. In the yeah, early exactly. 70s as well, several children from our family, including the Siri Singsab's two younger children, attended for two or three years. The results have been consistent, the effects and the unfoldment of their potential in innocence and many changes in behavior, their respect for self and others, ways of communication, level of maturity and responsibility have been positive and encouraging. The children themselves have expressed their pleasure and growth in self-esteem at these changes. And I'm gonna read one more short paragraph because I think it's pretty important to a lot of people's history. The school is administered by Sikhs, follows the British system of education, the medium of instruction is English. The schedule is organized and disciplined and includes two Gudwara services daily. The enrollment is about 800 with two campuses, one for all the girls and boys, grades one through three, the other for boys grades four and above. All students board and most teachers live there. We now have one couple, Nanak Dev Singh and Guru Nam Kar Khalsa and Tej Kar Khalsa from our family teaching there, supervising sadhana, diet, bana, and generally serving as a liaison between the Western Sikh students and the administration, staff, and students. Mm. Who wrote that? It, the person who wrote it specifically, it's signed yeah. by uh, Sardani Saib, Dr. Sakhtirpal Karkalsa, Assistant yes. Secretary General. Yeah, so she's Secretary General of the India's program and, yes. um, you know, different communication heads, right, of the different people that he had in charge whoa that was heavy to hear right so again be these parents and all you're told is you suck you're horrible you you suck you're you're a horrible influence on your children yep let me let, let let me tell you what you need to do with your children right so this my paperwork is filled out to go here so I didn't go in that first small batch. So in reading the dates of this, again, my dates are a little muddy. This might be the letter my mom received for me to then get added in after they'd been there nine months. And then how come you didn't actually go if you had all the paperwork and you had been approved? Well, that's, a, that's a, the reason is this following story, history. Oh. It's not even a story, it's history. Got it. And I need to be very clear. With every ounce of my soul, I wanted to be with them. I missed them. I didn't know how to function without them. And You're when this, the other kids, the other kids that had left. Cause they um, must've left in like 1983. 
right? Or they must, I think they left in 81. This was 81. wave two, 82. So this is actually after the period that I'm still at the, I was at the ranch with just a couple, a smaller group left over and they had moved some other kids in. Española had rotated. And you're still at the Wagadoos. No, I'm at the Wagadoos. My father moves there. To New Mexico. And this is, again, it's very muddy, but I absolutely, because one of the two girls left is being groomed. Yeah, the one of the girls left in New Mexico is being groomed into being a secretary. She and her mom live at the ranch in one of the little side houses, side, side rooms. So... I'll start with the, that period because that's the, that's the period where everything changed for my mom and my life and contributed to what started being the back and forth of me getting out a couple of years later. Got it. Okay. Um, at that point, because there's no one left. I mean, and you, I say no one. You say it just most changed. the kids had gone to India. The like kids had gone. about 25, let's say 20. Yeah. Low, something and of that certainly nature. the ones I was friends with. And mm-hmm. there's two girls left who I relate with. And it's funny because I read a letter. I found a letter last night for the first time. I've never seen it. That Waigaru car wrote my mom um, mm. while they're gone. And I wonder if it has a date on it, actually. Yeah, this is actually October 28th, 1981. Oh so they God. must be gone. Because I, at this point, I'm at the ranch a lot. Hold on. You're saying who's gone? The Waigaru's? The first, the first small group Got is it. in yeah. India. Got it. Because so the kids I've have got, gone. Yeah. Why good is writing a letter to your my mom. mom to update her on me. And that whole group has already gone to India. And there's only a small yes. group left in, in New Mexico. And this is, you know, it's saying that I'm having a hard time with my two friends. Again, I don't want to use their names because neither of them has spoken mm. on any cast. And I don't feel it's my place to do that on their behalf. That's okay. Absolutely. Um, but you know, it, it's a letter talking about the fact that I'm apparently upset that they cut me out of a certain thing. Um, but I'm at the ranch and I'm at the ranch a lot. He's built a pool. I'm at the pool singing car- coal miner's daughter. Premka's at her little house right at the edge of the pool. Um, I'm learning that my friend, apparently at the ranch, you get to have craft Mac and cheese, um, and get to eat real food. And Carta Pudic is there. And I can't even begin to describe, and I've spoken about this on some Zoom calls, how absolutely beautiful I thought that woman was. I was maybe a little obsessed with her. God, she was pretty. Um, I'm sure she still is. And this is how I had the access to start to see more the inner navigation and the inner workings of the ranch. I was always visiting before. Now I was there. And so if it's 81, I'm only 10 years old. And I am, I'm using the kitchen. (laughs) I'm watching TV. I'm sitting in the living room. I, all of the things I am going to every movie. I, which was a big deal. He loved to go to the movie and loved to go with an entourage. Um, and this is where the Kate felt story comes in. Um, because I was, I, I, I was little and I would watch her and I would watch my friend and I've always remembered this day and I never knew what it meant until I read the story of uh, Kate Felt. I, ranch, garage, room, little ranch, like uh, garage rooms that one was covered in pillows on the floor. Um, Like it felt like a yoga room, meditation room. And I remember watching her sister, 
she would go to the room and then Kartapudik would follow. Her sister would leave and then he would follow. He would go in the room and she would come out crying. Now, at the age of 10, do I know what's happening in there? No. Do I know that all of a sudden this girl, she's crying and I don't know why, but she's crying when she leaves and he's leaving first and then she's leaving crying. I know that she's starting to be treated differently. She was told to wear red heels. Now, in a world where we were all directly wearing all white head to toe if we were in his presence and she's made to stand out in red heels. She's made to wear makeup. It was. Again, I did not. You can't understand it at the time. But when I found out what happened to her and I found out that people were questioning it. Anybody who says that that poor, poor woman did not go through hell was not there because I was too young to understand the concept of rape at the time, but I did read the paper and understand she got a settlement. Okay. And I know that she was reviled. She was vilified. She was God, everything. Everybody talked about her when that whole court case came out. And I would just say that from my experience there of watching him groom a young girl, just a few years older than me and watching what was happening with her, I believe her. What other reason would he have to be in that room and why would she leave crying? It wasn't practicing yoga. He didn't do yoga. Love that he's like the Kundalini massacre. But by that point, the man was a little girthy in size and he was not yoga at all. No, you're saying you're sitting there watching these. No, I would, I would hide around the building, but that's what I mean. You're, you're on the property, but you're watching these humans. You're talking about an adult, a child lens watching occurrences happen. And for those of you that don't know, you know, uh, Carter Burke's sister is Guru Amrit and she's the head person that, you know, is still, still all written up in the system folks. Um, Yep. Only, you know, I call her the headmistress, but um, it's, <laughs> you know, she's, you know, you can go back and look at the court documents that Darcy's talking about, um, and it is in the public record. The atrocity of abuse is in the public record, and yeah. the extent of her contribution is also written, including her own intellectual property, as well as her physical, mental, and emotional and psychological self. Um, mm-hmm. but wow, what you're sharing to actually have a, a relationship with her and, and these folks directly, it's next level. I tried so hard to find her when I found out. Um, but again, when I found out Google wasn't Google, internet wasn't internet. And I know that there are several people who have wanted to find her even in the past couple of years. And she's chosen to not be found, which yeah, I completely actually- respect. And she's asked to not be contacted for those. Yeah, and I respect that. Me and too. why shouldn't 100%. she? She was treated and, like shit. And we stand for you and we respect that. Absolutely. One of the highest and best things we can do is respect a boundary when somebody has set it for us. So, right. Um, but for me, I, I'm glad I've got you're speaking left. to Sorry. it though, because what I want to really say is that she, like you said, she was ignored, she was slandered, she was yeah. torn apart. And remember, folks, she was a child. Yeah. When she was brought in by her sister 
and the grooming began young. And so to hear yep. a new perspective, Darcy, to, to speak any more to what you want to add here, it's such an important witnessing of a survivor that we all consciously or unconsciously have contributed to not believing, to victimizing, to victim shaming, because when you're in an ethos of a cult that makes that story wrong, then you collectively have built your spiritual life off of somebody else's terror. And that is Carter Perk's terror. And that was as early as 1981. Her lawsuit was 1985, folks. Mm-hmm. And what you, Darcy is speaking to, I have memories of a child of remembering how beautiful Carter Perk was, of remembering her in a chuni and her white little pumps. She would come to the Phoenix Ashram and the only person allowed to wear high heels and I'm yep. a little child. I'm yep. delighted. Yes. So that is not a small mark. And the fact no. that today, if you go ask somebody who is a 3HO for lifer, and you ask him that story. I asked Krishnakar and the story that she jumped into was literally like a hazy, oh, I think it was for her spine. And they literally yes. tell a story that yes. YB would have repeatedly publicly use. And if you know anything about sadist sexual abuse and psychological abuse, these are tactics of right. sadism and, and sexual terror when you do things publicly and privately and you tell one story publicly and another one privately and you're forcing behaviors and you're conditioning behaviors in the psychology of a person, it's horrific, horrific abuse. Darcy, what you've spoken to here, I don't think anybody has validated her experience the way that you've just done it. And I want to honor that. And really, I really appreciate that. It's, it's always been important to me and I've never, ever in my life wavered. It's, It's part of the reason my father and I stopped talking before he died, because I've always shared this because again, from the time I understood the lawsuit and saw it, and it was when I was in college because I started discovering Stephen Hassan and I, and you're um, talking about that's many years later, many, many decades later. We're talking about decades later, later. is able to put these things together, but yes, Think about that. Like 81, she's watching these things happen. And it's just right. kind of everyday existence of people that you love and care about having no idea what the right. heck is actually taking place. And that's what it was for me. It was that somebody who I really cared about was sad. And I, you know, it's interesting because last night I found a letter when my mom passed away. Like I said, I found stuff and I don't know why I just never caught this. And I found a letter and I'm not going to read the whole thing, but it, it's from Waigarukar writing my mom with an update again in October of 81. Okay. And there is an entire paragraph on all the ways Kartapurik was involved in my life. Read it. And I, it was really, well, okay. Let's, I have to, let's I'll hear obliterate it. This some, is classic. I will obliterate some names. Um, then she, that's me, began another week at school. Um, she had a difficult Monday because this person and that person, because I'm obliterating names, decided that their voices sounded better together doing Kirtan and Uma felt left out. That is true. <laughs> but within a couple of days, it all go, got worked out. Monday night, we went to a Gudwara at the ranch for Kartapurikar's birthday. It was beautiful. On Tuesday, though, she got the letter and picture from Gurmander Singh. He um, was who Yogi Bhajan engaged my mother to. It upset her a lot. As you know, she has a lot of anger about him. 
on Wednesday, I flunked a science test. She flunked a science test because she got angry at her teacher, Namkar, for making her go to school and get her book. But we redid the test at home. That night, we had a talk. This is where I'm kind of like, it's just a different version of things. Um, then we went and saw a slideshow about the Golden Temple. On Thursday, Guru Ramdas's birthday, Kartapurik and I, Kartapurikar and I spoke with Namkar, the teacher at the fifth, seventh graders, because there were some discipline problems with Utma. <laughs> Apparently, I was not easy. It was a good what meeting. I love, what I love hearing is the way she's lensing it, because we know right. her lens isn't going to be a correct lens. But what it does give us is a snapshot into kind of what she deems as normal. Right. And that's, that's so powerful because a lot of times our psychology, we can't see what we think is normal. It just is normal to us. But when you hear it, you're like, oh my God. So anyway, keep going. It feels, well, it's so, it's so superficial on so many levels. Um, That night we had another Gurdwara classroom. I mean, another Gurdwara for Guram Dashji's birthday. I left about 9 PM, but Utma wanted to stay with Kartapurik and stayed until 10. Um, she really loved it. So I think my point is, um, then there's another thing. After that, we went to a mobile carbon copy with um, Siraj Kar, Hari Kar, and Kartapurik Kar. She had fun and enjoyed being with the ladies. She, on Sunday, we went to a Gudwara. It's a lot of Gudwara talk. Well, that's um, why this is so classic because we have to really hear, like as mundane as it sounds, Darcy, this is really uh, so potent. The more we can hear of this letter, the better okay. because it gives us, again, a snapshot to a time period. And uh, this is classic cult 101. Like if you're going to Gurdwara regularly, if everything you of your life is revolved around yeah. a way of seeing something that's so singular and per- wonderful, right? You're yeah. not seeing all the other things. And so even that simple thing of how often she's referring to Gurdwara, anybody who's been in the lifestyle knows that that's not, not true. Yeah. I mean, we're talking, I've got three Gurdwara mentions in one paragraph. In Apparently one... I went to Gurdwara a lot that month, that week, Evidently. that right. week. Um, then she goes, and then it was time for another week to begin. <laughs> um, so on Monday, this is interesting. These next two paragraphs are a little interesting. On Monday, school was out early for teachers meetings. So she wrote tons of letters all afternoon. I'm fairly confident I was probably writing um, tons of letters to Sirankar, Siri Kar, and my friends in India. On Tuesday, the Siri Singh sub arrived. That evening, she came with me to gymnastics class. Um, on Thursday, she came to the airport with us to the, see the Siri Singh sub off. He looked at her and then turned to me and said, quote unquote, she is growing beautifully. Her face lit up and she was beaming all day. Um, Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's really just the rest of it just seems so mundane. But you know, None even that mundane. paragraph, you and I talked about this when I found this letter this morning. And I have to wonder what would I do if I had my niece with me and my and I'm 10 and some old man's like, she's so beautiful. She's growing beautifully. Growing beautifully. And, you know, to hear that in context now, like at that time, that would create such ooze oh. and awes. From everybody, right? Anyone. Anyone that heard special. it. Yeah. It was at the ranch. Absolutely. Yeah. As if that was normal sounding, but you hear that now and you're like, oh my gosh, especially knowing this man was already sexualizing and and sexually abusing and grooming our young girls. Right. Um, So it's, it's, 
hearing the letter again is so powerful because as a guardian, number one, it's going to be tainted because it's a guardian writing your mom. Right. I mean, hello, she's only going to say the things that she wants to say and not the real truth. But number two, hearing just this, the, the, the taint of this G, oh, she loved it so much. And then this happened. Yeah. And then the, everything is about the next Gurdwara. And then the next time you see yes. Yogi Bhajit. Well, and part of what's unusual and odd for me with this letter is it's addressed to my mom and dad together. Interesting. And my mom's in LA. My dad is probably still in Millis and they are so not together. My mom's, my mom is engaged in LA and I like, I'm like, is that, you know, and I, my mom had it. So it's clearly real, but I don't Mm -hmm. understand it because it's, why would you write my mom and dad together? Yeah. Like, who are you writing the update for? It's almost like it's for YB. It feels generic. Yeah. yeah like it feels it's, super generic. It's like, let's give us an update on Umma. And so she's writing it as a title right. as opposed to one of them directly. Right. Um, and that's such an interesting um, n- non-personal quality yes. of it in the sense like it's it's seeing you but not really giving any real intimacy of you. None. Um, it's tactical. It's execution. Tactical. And, and well yeah. said, well said. Yeah. And, and that's important to, to speak to here because again, going back to him saying, oh, isn't she developing beautifully? And everybody oohs and ahs and you gush and she writes about Oh, I'm it. sure I was thrilled. Every, but you're thrilled because you've had that reinforced that that is Absolutely. the proper behavior, not because of anything other than what you've been trained, but right. again, she notes it. And yes. as if that's going to be the highlight for your mom, because we all right. know that it is. And so just that, right. how that whole grooming machine is already in full, in full effect. hundred percent. And by this point, my mom is in LA working at the golden temple with Akasha and Mani. And yes, and they, oh. I love those two to death. Uh, still love them to death. And interwebs are. Yes, yes. And so back to the question of how did I end up not going to India? Somehow after this, soon thereafter, I'm in Los Angeles. Again, I don't know if I'm visiting. I really don't. But I am in Los Angeles with my mom. But just in general, like around the time when everybody and all the kids start gearing up to go to India, do you have recollection as to why you weren't a part of that group? No, I have no idea. You just whatever. And remember, folks, you know, a lot of this had to do with the economics, you know, who had the economics of being able to go and everybody's situations were so different. And so as kids, you're just getting carted into the categories, especially if you haven't been, if your parents were in all leader positions, then you're as kids are automatically, you know, shuffled into these. Right. And mine were not. I mean, my mom and dad were, my dad in particular was in the very low income group in 3HO. My mother um, was in the middle system, hard worker, again, participated very actively in both Golden Temple restaurants. I call them Um, the peasants, like we're the peasant, peasant groups. And then and, and we were the people that, you know, just the committed, the yoga committed, yeah. the, the seva committed, the whatever jobs necessary committed, but the people really running the show really kind of manipulated yeah. those folks a lot. I mean, I have the page also where my mom, literally it's her rooting number from Bank of America to pay for school. 
Um, but it is very possible. I, I would, be, it would be very likely that my mom did not have the money for me to go in that first group. Um, okay. I mean, down to if my mom paid for something and this is, again, I completely blame whomever handled the money in 3HO for this because my mom would pay for things and somehow my father would manage to get the money. My mom always worked very, very hard. And my father did not work hardly ever. Oh my God. Um, is that mon- not misogyny in 3HO oh, it was awful. work or what? And, then, like, I remember my mom actually bought me uh, a horse, a pony in, in Española. She paid for um, a pony that came, a name Shkan, who came with Tatezi. And uh, it was Mud's daughter. And I was so excited. And I thought this was my pony until finally one day the woman who ran the horses was like, no, your, your father took the money. And it wasn't my pony. Um, my point being is I can see my father somehow managing to manipulate the money somehow. And that's where this paperwork might come in that my mom had to do it differently. Well, the, the for me to go of the, of the, how to actually get the money to go to yes. school, send the yes. money to India properly. So he could yes. award the money. How somehow manipulative. To- yeah, yeah. This is just so like darkly convoluted. Oh, it's, it's, it's again, this is why I don't talk to people. It's, in- yeah. it's insane. So how did I get to India? So I'm in LA and I, I know I'm miserable. I know I want to go to India. Like I am dying to get to India. Because you're in New Mexico. You're still with She's sending updates and now, and you end up in LA. No, then I go to LA. Right. That's what I mean. So like after this letter where she's sending updates, you end up in LA LA. and your mom's in LA. My mom is in LA. And you're about what age right now? Are you in your teenagers? You're 12. 12. You're not even 13 yet. Okay. 12 years old. And I am trying to be normal. Um, my mom has me in a normal school. I don't even know how she managed to swing getting me in. But my mom also starts the process of hiding me from my father again. Um, so that's when I get a new last name. I don't, she got me into a school, changed my last name. And I don't know, I know I have to take a lot of tests to get into a normal school, but she gets me into a normal school. I struggle. I run away. I beat people up. I am a holy terror to get back to my friends. All I want is to leave. And my mom, who had not raised me basically now for years and years and years was not equipped to deal with me. So through whatever conversations happened, and keep in mind, my mom's at the Golden Temple, not only Armani, Akasha there, Ron Beer's there full time. That's Yogi Bhajan's son. Yogi Bhajan's son. So Yogi Bhajan's in the restaurant all the time. So I absolutely know that there's some sort of my mom talking about this with whether it's the secretaries, whether it's him, I I'm absolutely, I know I'm a discussion point. And that summer I go back because knowing my father is a prolific wife beater, Yogi Bhajan gives him a new wife and gives him a wife with four children. And I go back for the wedding. Hmm. When, and I'm thinking that what I think back is happening where? Back where? to Espanola. Back to Espanola. I'm fair. What I believe is happening because this paperwork's done. I'm going back for the wedding and then I'm going straight to India at the end of summer. That's what you that's, think is happening. That's what I think is happening. And this is when my mom filled out the paperwork. It's after sixth grade going into seventh grade. So I'm like, yay. I'm going home. I'm going back with my friends. I did not like, I did not know how to be normal in Los Angeles, like in any capacity. 
I hated my mother for forcing me to be there. I, I was angry. I was simmering and I get to go back to Española. I get to go back to the horses. I get to go back to what I'm comfortable in. That summer, he personally engages me. Like I'm in his living room. I get engaged. At that engagement, I am told to go take Kulsa vows up at the solstice site. I do. <laughs> I am recommitting to the cause after my last year where I trimmed my hair. Um, I am re I am like, I'm in. Everything my mom tried to do to get me out. Now in this period of time too, my mom had fallen in love with a woman. Her um, engagement, needless to say, ended. She always said he was an absolutely lovely human being. Lovely. Um, Mani has told me the same thing. Akasha has told me the same thing. But my mom fell in love with a woman who was not in 3HO. So I'm pulled into the big trailer at Solstice that he would visit, the air-conditioned one. I'm told what a whore my mother is. She's become a lesbian. She's defiled the world, you know, blah, blah, blah. I am like, okay. And I absolutely believe that I need to get away from her hair, terrible ways. I've, and I'm going to go to India. Somehow that summer too, my father, my mom had given me a gold chain with a horse on it. It was a gold horse. Right when I got there, the very first thing my father did, probably the first day I was there, was ask me to hand it to him. In front of me, he melted it down over a fire and drank it. That's the type of man he was. But again, we gave him a new wife with four children. Good job. Um, at the end of this summer, I, some, my, my father's sister convinced him to let me come visit her before I left for India. So my father being the untrusting human that he is, I leave with only my little backpack. All my stuff is there because I'm going to India. So my, like my, my stuff is in Española. I go to visit San Francisco thinking it's just a weekend. I get off the plane and my mother's there. And that becomes the next two years of hiding me from my father. My mom and her partner have made the decision I am not going to India. Engaging me is crazy. And they are going to move through heaven and hell. The biggest problem was me. I fought them with every ounce of my soul. Um, I mean, I fought them. They are trying to un-3HO me. My mom, by the way, is still working at the Golden Temple. So this was not the easiest thing as she's dressing every day to go to work. Um, and my, I switched three schools because my father keeps showing up, doing his little game with whomever he had by him. I wish I knew who it was, but he was always with one man. And my father came, we lived in an apartment in Hollywood. My father um, threatened my mom's life regularly and then showed up with his wife and bless her heart. She is, she's being abused by him. She, what power does she have? And because it's his wife, I don't know if it's that I felt okay, but it's okay. Darcy can go see a movie with them or he called me Utma. And 
I'm, I'm, he's working on me because I've got to get, I've got to get to India. I've got to get to my friends. And, you know, we're writing letters back and forth. I've got to get out of Los Angeles. To your dad. Through my dad. Like, and I hate my father. Right. Because, but (laughs) what I hear, I'm going to pause for a second. What I hear happen is that your mom and her new partner try to do an intervention and try to get you out of quote, the cult of zero HO, but you're already set on going to India, not to be with your dad. You already don't want a relationship with your dad. I don't want already a craze balls. Right. But she intervenes instead of communicating with you about what you need to go to India, yada, yada, Uh not realizing she has zero authority over you because she, she didn't have any access to any of your young years. Right. Wow. The complexity. Okay. So now she's, She has you, you're going to school in San Francisco now or in LA? No, I'm in LA. Okay. So I switched first year to school, second year, and this is back and forth, back and forth with my father. My father um, had a gun. He had an ax. My father was a crazy, violent human being. And ultimately, I don't know how I relented. I don't know who relented. I don't, but I just, India was just no longer. And I was in LA and I was in normal schools and I was starting to use Darcy. Um, But I was still seeing my friends when they came home for the summer, because so often they would come to LA now, instead of they weren't going to Espanola, they're coming to LA. Yes. And that had to become enough. And and it was quite a heyday of, of this time, you know, when those, when the, when the kids came back from India, yes. it was a, a whole group of them living in LA yep. and yep. some were quote in and some were quote out and there was kind of sort of this. Yeah, yeah. And that within that group or that faction of, of, of relationships, it didn't matter, you know, it didn't right. matter all the dogma None of it. didn't matter. Everybody loved each other. Anyways, it was a very unique tight knit yeah. group. And, and I, you speaking yeah. to that you're in going to school in LA, having dealt with all this drama of not being able to have gone to India because of yeah. HO, uh, mom intervention and then dad psychopathic behaviors. And yeah. And, and having did YB never intervene and just like tell you to go to know. India or speak to like, you never remember anything directly, not directly to me. I mean, and I, do you know, if YB had a relationship with your father, I always, I had always heard and I feel like I had enough close proximity to have reliable sources that YB thought my father was insane. I had heard, and I do not know if it's true. I tried to find out. I heard that my father also became so obsessed with YB that there, that he tried to hurt him. But I don't know if that's true. But again, there was a concentrated effort and result to keep me, my father, it was again, a chess game. My father moved, they moved me. My father moved, they moved me. So there was a clear understanding of my father's level of violence and obsession, but I still then can't show my head, wrap my head around why he was allowed to remarry with a woman with four children. Not allowed, told. And this is the thing about how YB protected a lot of these abusers is he probably knew he was sociopath and kept him on guard because this yeah. type of sociopathic person would quote, do anything for him. And right. these types of the fact that these types of people are, are guarded within communities like this, but specifically in three HO. And a lot of us are just not taught to look at it as such, but that's yeah. what it is. It's pedophiles and abusers are actually protected 
Right. And, and then retold to be married. This, this, I remember coming up in, in, um, in regards to several stories I've heard in terms of wife beaters that why be inadvertently supported if not directly supported. Yeah. And I, it's your point. Like I would have corrected the inadvertent. I don't know if it was inadvertent. Right. Exactly. I, I, I really don't. I think um, it was strategic and it's a I part it of dysregulation and it's a part of keeping um, a sense of loyalty that he's the one that already has the, you know, yeah. like I've given him a remedy. We've heard this. So-and-so has been handled by YB and we did an episode right. about the, the predator that was sent to South Africa after being an abuser in, in New Mexico and YB knew about it. And then he sends them to Africa and then they have to deal with that. And then even after that came up, he tries to, YB tries to send him to Zimbabwe. And it was only because that ashram spoke up that said, no, you're not going to just send an abuser on to another ashram. No, you're not going to do that. And that over the decades never happened. Like, no, it's not okay to send an abuser on to another community and give them a meditation for 90 days. That's not adequate. Right. And I don't know if that's ultimately what ended up happening with my father, because my father ultimately, um, his wife was given a divorce. I know that he hurt her tremendously. Um, but again, that's there. That's those four's story to tell. Um, and the ashrams they lived in because yeah, he's, he was in Espanola when he was beating her up. Exactly. And that's not the first story where in that community, these types of things, whether it's in Millis or whether it's in Phoenix or whether it's in when, when, when domestic violence is happening and nobody says anything in the atmosphere, that is learned behavior of safety and non-safety. And the fact that we are in, I remember there were plenty of things that happened that nobody talked about. And Mm -hmm. what does it reinforce to you as a child when horrible things are happening and nobody's saying anything, you learn what you spoke to earlier in your own upbringing indoctrination was you don't react. Right. And so if you think about that as like a fundamental indoctrination that happened, you don't react. Well, when violence is occurring right in front of us, yeah, we don't react. When such and such is happening, we don't react. When you see a man punching a woman in the face, you don't react. You know, like these things, we're talking about horrible abuse, abuse that we've normalized right. ourselves to not react to. Well, my father was brazen enough and clearly emboldened enough can't even hide it <laughs> you know he did he punched in the face like you know a an abuser often will do it where you don't see under the shirt pull the you know my father had no compunction about somebody knowing this was happening he wasn't embarrassed i want to say it was, and it, but it. then for us whether it be i know for me watching so many of these things, the impact this has had on my adult relationships. And I, I will tell you this, and I, I say this intentionally, I have never, ever been hit by man. Relationship things that I shouldn't have. to navigate and evolve that for myself. But when you, my relation, my, my whole context of marriage is so broken. I mean, I, 
I, my boyfriend who I was with for five years passed away three years ago and he wanted to marry me very badly. I wouldn't because marriage means nothing to me. And after he died, this whole, he died in February of 2020. Then this blew up in March of 2020. I wish I had done the work to understand why, where the foundation is for what I think of marriage as transactional, as interchangeable, swappage, Mm. Um, why I don't see the value in it that some other people do, because I think I would have recognized that I could have grown to appreciate it because he loved the value of it. And do I regret that? Hell yeah, I do. Um, But um, you know, I've learned from it now and I, I have to wonder how many of us feel that way. I don't know. Um, yeah, because for me, when that, you're engaged, sorry, yeah, speak to a, you got engaged quite young and you were engaged by yeah. YB and, and we didn't hear the rest of I have of that friends story. who got swapped. That's what I, mean, I like, want to hear. Swapped. Speak. So speak <laughs> to that because in these, in this group that got sent to India early and then they yeah. came back, they were this first group of yeah. kids that were turning adults that were then getting either quote groomed or arranged marriage. And yeah. you were kind of the front seat to that. If you want to speak a little bit. More. I was in the first group. I just didn't have to have it happen, <laughs> but they were, but, and I know it's been on your podcast with some people I and mean, it's been spoken about freely on zoom calls, but again, for if they dared to have feelings for somebody or it was within the machinations or the need of a different transaction or an ultimate goal, he just swapped them. Like they were cattle. And these were people who were, some of them were still in my life. And I'm just saying that it just, I always, I always wish I could write my high school boyfriend a full letter of apology (laughs) because, you know, I, I didn't see love. I didn't see relationships and love necessarily as coexistence. I always thought he would leave me. I thought he was embarrassed of me. We were together for almost four years, but and he actually went to this wedding with me, um, to a Sikh, to a Sikh wedding with me. He was an amazing human being, but God, I must've been difficult because I had done none of the work, none of it. And I didn't know how to relationship. I just didn't, I didn't know how to accept love because I also thought it could be taken away any second. Um, and that stayed with me for probably way too long in my life through way too many relationships. I, you know, you talk, people can talk about having an abandonment complex. I was always short up for an abandonment and I wasn't even bitter about it. I, because I didn't feel I was ready that this could end every day. So I treated the relationship like it could. And that's just sucks. Well, that your whole sense of self or our sense of self is, is that I'm stable with or without anything. Yeah. And like, when I kind of realized that, like, that was like my inner stabilizing message I'm like, whoa, this is that, that's not good. Like, yeah, no, no, like it's no, not normal need need things. And to even recognize, to realize that that's kind of like what you operate on. There's a couple of things you mentioned, but like, I really remember being a, a, let's see if that generation, if you're, if you're the generation that went to India first was like 18, um, I'm eight, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, Well, I'm, yeah, I'm eight. So I'm saying that to kind of give perspective. I remember going to LA and watching 
these swapped marriages of people that I know that were engaged to someone else. And then they Mm -hmm. were, because in order to date in our community, you had to be engaged. So people were ended up engaged for a long time. You kind of got known for a while that these two people were together. And then suddenly Mm -hmm. he would just be like, you and you marry, and you're going to marry tomorrow. Like next week. Exactly. (laughs) And it ends up becoming such a thing. And you're watching people you love crying and, and, and you're, I'm now eight watching you all kind of as my little fantasy world and, and what it was like for you, because like, I'm a young child. These aren't actually my friends. I'm a young child thinking they're my friends, but I'm really a child to these people. And I remember watching double weddings and both the, both of the women were bawling their eyes out the whole LA wedding. Yeah. No, it, 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 it's heart wrenching, you know, and even at that point, as I was becoming more and more normalized. And I just say that just from having perhaps other life experience, therefore being a little less tolerant and speaking up a little bit more Mm. than I wasn't participating as much because it, it was awkward. It was uncomfortable. You know, as you're watching your, as you're watching your friends hurt and, you know, again, I think as they all went to India, they formed this much, there was a bond in Espanola. Then there was the bond of India Yeah. and I didn't experience it. And so I say that to say that it was, but you still see the pain and the sadness. And even now I said, what you yeah, feel, even what's now not as we're all sharing stories, it's, or sharing our histories. It's, it's just heartbreaking because I, I, I think for most of us, it framed things. And then some people had the opportunity and I do say opportunity, the opportunity to do work. You know, for me, I refused until three years ago, until this whole thing started with us talking about this openly as a group, I refused to talk to a therapist who wanted to discuss being raised in a cult. I would interview therapists and say, if you ask me about my childhood and how I was raised and try to make that a reason for anything, I will not hire you. I was so convinced until three years ago that this had nothing to do (laughs) with any decision in my life. This had nothing to do with the fact that I don't cry. This had nothing to do with the fact that I struggle to feel things, that I don't react, that I have a tendency to choose men who are very similar to Yogi Bhajan in attitude. They're arrogant. They're cocky. I'm attracted to it. I, until my last boyfriend, who was not any of that, and he was stable and he was kind and he was soulful and he was quiet. And um, I'm grateful that I had gotten to a place in my life to allow that. Mm. But it's been very jarring to accept the cause and effect of this. My Mm. mom, when I was about 25, no, I'm sorry, not 25, excuse me. Uh, Nick was seven, so I was 35. Uh, my son is Nick. And um, my, my mom told me I have selective compassion. Mm. My mom, by that point, had become an addict. And I was dismissive of her addiction. And she said, you have selective compassion. I think it was one of the most powerful things anybody has ever said to me. Mm. Because she was a hundred percent right. 
because of our experiences. If you're there crying, I'm like, why are you crying? (laughs) You could have the worst day in the history of your life. And I'm like, in my head going, that's nothing. I mitigate and I was mitigating and reducing other people's emotions and therefore not hearing their, hearing their need because it was nothing. Mm. You want to talk about trauma? I'll tell you about growing up crazy. Like, and ever since that day, I have made effort, but it is still to this moment, a conscious effort for me to be compassionate to human beings. Mm. Mm. Oh, the weight, pause, let that land. Yeah. Selective compassion. Yep. I remember a man saying to me in LA years ago, where is your humanity? Right. Where is your humanity? And I just, I, there was no part of me that could register why he would possibly nope. say that to me. No. And I I very much just relate to what you're speaking here too, because we don't know. It's like a fish doesn't know they're in water. Right. You don't know what you've been trained into. And you're saying just like three years ago, it's just so powerful to hear how, even though your most formative years from five Uh to 13 and one can know that these are formative years and yet the way and I want to call it mystical it's like a mystical Uh way in which the our identities got dismantled and reformed in this convoluted ethos that one can grow up not feeling a thing and yet think they're fully embodied at a hundred percent the awareness you're so hyper aware hyper functional high functioning and yet this selective compassion not feeling but at the same time tactically i'm who you want in a crisis full on i will solve a situation i am quick to action i am steady i am cool as a cucumber i respond i don't react So in crisis, I'm a star, but in emotional crisis, I'm like, so what's everybody got a problem with, right? Like, what are we doing here? (laughs) I so relate to this. And I always put that and and I was more the yogi, right? So like my trauma uh, mechanism was to definitely be more into the yoga, but it was just that it was like, come on, get it together. Work on your nervous system. Like you're not steady enough. Like, let's go. Let's go. (laughs) Yeah, let's go. (laughs) and you know it's i i also don't allow compassion i Mm. am incredibly incredibly private i say this to say i just finished a major surgery major i have been i got very sick in october i have put on weight which kills me um it's i have felt awful like i'm physically tired And I had major surgery four weeks ago. And in doing that, I didn't tell, I told hardly anybody. And a friend of mine last night who did know said, can I tell people? And I said, why? (laughs) 
And they were like, well, people would want to know. And I said, why? <laughs> and this went back and forth. And I said, I, I need you to understand how incredibly uncomfortable I would be because it would read false to me for somebody to check in on me. I don't know how to react. I look down. Mm. I say, thank you. I don't interact on it. I hate, and I don't use hate easily. I hate, I get nauseous when people show me compassion. So it's both ways. Oh it is God. not, it is something that is completely out, un, un, with, let me clarify, and this is important, with people, with people who have control over their own, own lives. I work at a shelter, a dog shelter. I'm an adoption counselor. I do it every week. I have for five years on my weekends. I am somebody who converses and comfortably converses and interacts and volunteers with the homeless community. But when you have control over something and I look at you and I see that you have all the resources in the world, I have none. And again, I don't want it back. And I don't know that I'll ever be able to change that. I don't even know that I want um, to. I'm not sure. Yeah, it really <laughs> is. It is really an interesting thing because one would never think it's like you're not compassionate. You know, it's like this, it's below uh -huh. the surface. Like when... So when all this came out, Darcy, I guess what I'm, I'm, I'm hearing a lot here is you don't know that you're not feeling if you've right. always not felt. Correct. You don't know what you don't know till you don't know it. <laughs> and so it's, uh, that's one of the reasons why I think this listening platform is so valuable to us all, because when you hear, it could be just the one little random thing you hear and it like cracks a code in you that lets you see right. something you didn't know, but it was, it was always there. And right. it's always for us. Right. So the thing about not allowing in, of course, because if you didn't have, if you had to learn how to shut down how you feel and not need right. anything, then any ounce of somebody giving you a matter, matter of attention is so drastically uncomfortable. And it brings up any amount of indoctrination around shame uh -huh. of what that means for you. You're weak, you're incapacitated, yep. blah, 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 and fills, fill in the blank. But as children, like the, the, the real level of abuse that this causes in us, the unpacking of this, like, I, I, I just have to concur that, you know, for me, the process of waking up to realizing I couldn't feel yeah. was 2012. And it's a really weird thing to kind of realize, like, huh, yeah. my whole sense of identity is what you're talking about, tactical, you know? on point, steady, can handle pressure, da, 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 da. like I had no uh -huh. idea how much of my own sense of self was actually language that he probably lectured. Yeah, I don't think any of us do. I mean, I, 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 I wrote, I, you know, in the, in the ramblings of a 14 year old poet, because <laughs> I would always write, my therapy was writing, my, just my personal, I just, I love writing. And I wrote this, very rhymy, but it said, my nights are long, my days too real. I've long forgotten what it is to feel. I just want to die. I wrote that at 13 years old and my mom kept it. And I, I wanted to die. I didn't know how to cope in this world in junior high in Los Angeles, where people were talking about things, doing things that there was just, I didn't know how to cope. 
And the only way out I knew was to die. And then I didn't have the courage to do it. And I, it's weird I used that word. I didn't have the courage to follow through. That's how I looked at it. So I made this decision and I credit Oprah Winfrey, which may sound crazy, but I was watching Oprah and she talked about being abused. Mm. And she, what she talked about was, she goes, I didn't look at it as abuse because I wasn't physically, I wasn't emotionally, I wasn't threatened. I was, it wasn't intimidating like that. And she goes, it wasn't done to me. This other person was sick. And I always say I committed soul suicide. I've told therapists that, but when I turned 14 and I just made this decision that I was going to isolate 3HO or Sikhism from my life as far as the impact. And I was going to start over and I was going to control everything from the rest of my life. Like I would control my life. Mm. And I committed soul suicide. Mm. And with that became even more, don't feel, don't feel, don't feel, don't let it impact you. Yeah. And on one hand, like you have this young age group, like that you formed these like really treasured bonds. And so on mm -hmm. one hand, you never got to complete that kind of memory of treasure because you didn't go to India. And yet those right. bonds still at their own form of solidification and safety, but almost in a fantasy way, in the sense mm -hmm. that yeah. it wasn't rooted in everyday life. Meanwhile, you had much more chaos happening day to day between your dad and your mom. And so you, it wasn't just 3HO that was nuts balls. Right. It was, it was, you had that. And then going to try to go to school in LA, being a teenager that grew up in the Dharma, that was crazy. So it, it's just like everywhere you turn, now you're yeah. talking about, of course, you want to just die, which we know now is complex PTSD symptoms okay. all day long. Um, but then you end up making this kind of like inner survival mechanism code that's like soul death. I'm going to control. And so the rest of your yep. life, you're operating through tactics and coping mechanisms yep. because that whole early segment of your life, like it, the inability to name it a cult, to name it what it is, even though there were horrible things that happened, there were also horrible things that happened, quote, outside. Even though this stuff was crazy, there were also crazy things that happened in your LA public Correct. school. Yes. So it was easy to kind of have this compartmentalized ways that you kind of navigated life and not make the upbringing, Correct. the indoctrination that set the tone for the rest, so to speak. Well, and then the final part of that is every time I tried to, if I talked to somebody who knew enough about 3HO that I might broach the conversation through the years, hmm. the first thing that they would do was tell me my father was a crazy, abuse, abusive fuck. And as a result of that, he happened to be in 3HO. 3HO didn't do that. So he is why all this happened. And I allowed that for decades, that mm. really I was a product of an abusive marriage. I was a product of an abusive father. And it had, and again, I would tell therapists had nothing to do with 3HO. I would talk about my father, but I would not talk about 3HO. Wow. I so relate. I know there's other kids listening to this. I've heard some stories that haven't come forward, Darcy, but when you hear some yeah. of the other kids that got kidnapped and the running yeah. away stories, this stuff is blowing my mind, how you're landing this and how we grow up and have a whole adult segments of our existence that are literally mimicking patterns of our earliest right. imprint 
that we don't link because we're trained not to see the very thing that's right there. Well, and then the challenge is too, for all of us, I think, you know, here you and I have had a very long podcast by your standards. I think we said we were going to do about an hour and here we are at two. And I know I'm not the first to take it to two, by the way. I was like, but, oh, we're just fine. But the challenge is <laughs> for all of us. So this again goes back to how you help anybody in your non-3HO life understand you. Because if you don't have all the linkage I started with, which is the roots of my foundation, I'm just a compa- an uncompassionate bitch. I'm just not nice. And you have, th- there's so much nuance to how so many of us got to where we are. Mm. We are not unkind. We're actually very loving. At least in my group, I can tell you most of us would be on a plane in two seconds if somebody needed us. And there was a recent trauma that showed that we show up and one-to-one group dynamic, different people have different relationships. Some people don't talk. It's a whole thing because, you know, it's been a long time, but at the end of the day, it's also the nature of trauma bonds. Right. But at the end of the day, we show up and I, it's a family. family. It's it's your yeah. family. There's a family that didn't get created and a new family that did. Right. And and you know, trauma bonds serve us and support us and help us, right? And there are also right. all these levels of enmeshment that um really was unrecognized, unnamed trauma, right? And so right. therefore those bonds kind of created a safety mechanism and a support system where nine and 10 year olds shouldn't have been needing each other for those reasons. And it's such a potent thing you bring out because as adults, you know, you, there are things you can depend on from each other. That is a level of connection that many don't have within their own blood family in this community. Right. Right. And I've carried that type of relationship bond into my non three HO life. I have had the, I have, five best, five best friends. And four I met when I was 15 years old and they're still in my life actively to this day. And one is a three HO person. And at the end of the day, how many people get to say they've had their friends for 35, 45 years of life and not acquaintances, friends. It's two very different words. And so three HO, I think also that sense of loyalty that came from us growing up together, we are, we are loyal. Um, and I think it's a good word. And I think it's important though, that we also remember that each situation is completely, completely unique. And I'm going to jump for a second because it, I want to say this out loud, you know, back to, we talked about this uh, at the start of this, it's important that those who don't know, don't judge at least from within the second gen and even the third gen group. You know, somebody made a comment on Facebook on the second gen group a couple weeks ago and said, if you didn't go to India, you shouldn't get to share your opinion. And I thought to myself when I read it as I, and I haven't, I I really was like, (laughs) oh, but everybody's situation was unique, whether you were in some satellite ashram, whether you had access to the ranch, whether you went to India at six, whether you were bullied, whether you were a bully. How did you become one? Whether you're, and this is where that selective compassion comes in. Anybody's worst trauma is their worst trauma if that's the most they've experienced. 
And you have to show respect and honor that. And I think that that is something I wish the first gen would be a little bit kinder and accommodating about as well. First gen, the the adult first gen? Yeah. Mm. You weren't there. (laughs) You sent us away and shipped us. Well, yeah, it's... It really speaks to, I think, the gravity of what cult indoctrination and cult programming does to us. And if we can't acknowledge that, uh, we actually don't get to go into some of the layers of of the impact. And then the responses, like natural, normal human responses to very complex trauma. And when there's coercive environments that are you know, when you read that letter about what the parents were abused, you know, against the kids and then the kids were pedestaled. And, you know, for those of you that need to hear this, listen to that first generation, first gen fragility episode prior to this, because we have to really understand the complex web of coercive control that happened in our brains and our bodies, not how we rationalize ourselves in present day reality, because present day reality is the strategy of being here. It's called right. adaptation. We're like amazing adaptogen people. So I think adding that 3HO and, and what YB was really doing was, you know, using, you know, psycho mystical, biophysical yeah. practices that add to the level of coercion that he was instilling. And that stuff forms senses of self, self self-image, self-identity, self-understanding, and all sorts of things. And so there's just, there's so much that you said in that last statement, I guess I want to say, is that there's no hierarchy to our traumas. There's not, right. We so much got that as a part of this indoctrination is that it's, you know, what scale is it worth speaking out? Now, if we already know that the base is you never speak out, you Uh never react. So then some, that means that the reason you speak out has to have be so, so bad. Now you don't even know you unconsciously got that absorbed into your psyche as a part of being born into this community. But Darcy, you've spelled it out so well that we're dealing with so many compacted layers of unaddressed trauma personally, within our family networks, within the community, within the ashrams we landed, within the households we landed, whether you went to school in India, whether you didn't, what right. school you ended up going to, what your public school experience was like. Right. And then all of the bonds, whether it's the marriages, the, the arranged marriages, the dysregulation of no place was safe. And then you describe the power of these, these relationships you've created, but what is relationship if we're not really allowing in full compassion? Right. 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 So right. it's such a, it's such a double bind once again, because here you have lifelong bonds and yet there could be personal experiences that you've never shared with people you've known your whole life because it's not safe enough. Which is why I was willing to do this call of this podcast, because I've never done this. I've never truly talked about it at this level in this sequence. Um, And at the end of the day, make no mistake for anybody who was hearing this, we were in a totalistic cult. Mm. We are no different than Bhagwan. We are no different than Karash. 
We are no different than the Hare Krishnas. We are no different than the moons. <laughs> we were in a totalistic cult. We were given names. We were stripped of our identities. We had a single figure who took a foundation of a great, amazing religion and manipulated it to suit his needs, to fill his own coffers, to create his own um, harem that he bestowed gifts upon, that he manipulated, that he raped, that created an empire that he benefited from. We were in a totalistic cult. And if you wanna know about it, check Stephen Sesson's books to understand what a totalistic cult is because we are the textbook. Yeah. And we love terror and brainwashing. She talks about totalistic yeah. cults. Yeah. It, and listen to this episode again because the nuances and the details to the layers and the leveling, your unique story of having um, been in and out, right? Mm -hmm. Here you have been out and yet you maintain this identity for a good 20 years of... Yeah. In my upbringing was special and a unique adventure and yada, yada. And yet I called myself this... a lapsed Sikh. <laughs> you did not. In, instead of a lapsed Catholic, I was a lapsed Sikh. That's hilarious. Because I was, you know, I kept my kata on. I really, 95% of the time, my hair is up. Um, mm. there, there were just things. I stayed a vegetarian. Um, and if I did stray from vegetarianism, I felt extreme guilt. Mm. Um, you know, I genuinely called myself a lapsed Sikh up until fairly recently. <laughs> and I just, I, I want to speak to just how powerful it is that you frame this for us, Darcy, because I can't, I can't relate it even more. I, I relate so much rather. That's the, what I'm yeah. trying to say, you know, being someone that I felt like kind of starting to identify at 15 and then by 18, you think you formed another identity and then you're navigating in and out of the community in a way that's unique and your identity and maintaining relationships. And whether it's wearing a kata or whether it's keeping a relationship to the yoga or whether it's keeping a relationship with the bonnies and not the yoga, right. or it's keeping a relationship with Sikhi and not the, you know, there's all these ways that we maintain a cognitive dissonance to right. not see what you just said, which is this is a totalist cult. Yeah. And the ways that the manipulation is continually used to this day um, to not see the abuse that's still living in the teachings because their power dynamics, yeah. their power dynamics of learning to not feel ourselves in the name of something that has been called greater. Yeah. I think what I just turned around to look at is I, I can't grab it. Um, you know, I have my nitnam at the bottom of my bookcase. I still read it. It's my nitnam from childhood. I have my first sword that Wagadu Singh bought me. It's my office. It's hanging. Um, it's hanging in my yeah. office. Yeah. And when my father passed away, I gave him a full Sikh funeral down to reading it in Punjabi took me some time to remember took me some time um so I think that that's where too like I've been out for years and years and years and years but when your father stays in even if you can't stand him and he's still sending you letters like he called me a whore up until the day I died his final act to me was to leave me and seven people a letter one was mm. to his stepdaughter and mine was to call me a whore for changing my name and leaving 3HO he died with a picture of my mother and Yogi Bhajan next to his bed. 
And like, it was always there. And I think that's again, where I have felt the need to defend that just because I'm out when your father stays in Mm. and your son is visiting him because I did allow him to see his grandfather. Like, it's just always there. It's just, and then my, it just is. It's also speaking to the core identity of what it means to learn something so young. Our yeah. early imprint, one of the things like I would be quote out for years and, and like you would go in, you would hear like a music song that was like yeah. a nostalgia song from the 80s and you knew the person singing it or something and it gave you uh-huh. a sense of pride to feel like you knew that person directly, like you were right. on the in part. And- uh-huh. I feel like cult indoctrination can do that in really interesting ways in that you can be outing, you can be kind of undoing your identity in some ways. And then other parts of your whole core sense of self is still so much indoctrinated in that's the way it is. And you're not even tolerant of looking at something else. And so that rings to what you're talking about around going to your therapist and having this ultimatum that if you say anything about X, it's a worldview. And I definitely had plenty of worldview ways of looking at things that I didn't see as rigid, but they were so rigid and it, it lends to that. I think the, the last thing I wanted to just add is also though, it became harder to call it a cult, the more normalized 3HO became, especially in Los Angeles and with celebrity buy-in. Can't agree more. The more popularized, the harder it is. Yeah. When you have, you know, and like I took pregnancy yoga with Gurmukh. Yes. When you, when you have, um, you know, when you have Gurmukh on Time Magazine, in Time Magazine, when you have Tej teaching every celebritant in the world with Gurmuk. And then right. you have, you know, Alicia, Alicia Keys. Keys. <laughs> and, I mean, although I still, I, the Gurjugget thing would be a whole separate thing. I think you should do a thing. Um, because let me get, who is she? She's got to stop. I know she's passed away, but like, it's crazy. The buy-in. It's, um, it's all, it's so bad. The celebrity yeah. culture of Kudalini the yoga cel- is a thing, folks. It you is. Look at this. You need to, and it's not okay that we as quote, OG young people in this thing right. think that it's not going on in hyper speed. And if it, and our silence allows it because we have friends yes. that take a class and we just allow it be, instead of being like- I no, have friends who mail ordered their names. Oh, like I'm, I really, I'm going to send this podcast to them and be like, I don't care that you do Kundalini. Yay you. I but do. God, and you can go God, ahead and well, check out my stuff and I will tell you why Kundalini yoga isn't necessarily good for you. But go ahead. Fair, no, I agree. Like, I hear you, but for me, it's more that you have pictures of him. Yes. Like stop. And you know, it's down to, I mean, recently I almost, I almost crapped myself. Leonardo's DiCaprio's mother was at an award show with him just recently. She's a full on three HO full bonus oh today. No, today. No, yes, we have got to speak out. You hear this message Darcy is saying right now, I'm telling you there is the YB predator, the formula in full effect in Hollywood right now. And there people is. are being arranged, yeah. marriaged. They are being there. It's next level influence that our voices, your voices will matter because you can come in and speak to the idiocy and the early 
idiocy yes. of Hari Jiwan, the early yes. idiocy of all the LA stuff and start popping that bubble quick because that bubble is getting big. But that bubble is, I think the hardest thing that we have legitimizing that we were in a cult. Yes. Because that's why like the Hare Krishnas, they didn't get the celebrities. The fact that we got celebrities makes our, what we are all saying, because people can't reconcile that celebrities are wrong. <laughs> I mean, I saw hmm. Charlie Hunnam from so Sons of Anarchy and um, Ryan Hurst, who is also uh, was on Sons of Anarchy. Ryan Hurst fully, who's also just was on The Walking Dead. And I used to think he was super hot because, of course, I'm attracted to that guy with the beard and the long hair. Um, it takes me a minute to realize that he's always got a hat on. And then I see pictures of he and Charlie Hunnam at Comic-Con. Comic-Con! teaching kundalini yoga with a picture of Yogi Bhajan behind them on Instagram. And I'm like, what in the universe is happening? I'm telling you folks, if you don't know what we're talking about, you need to go listen to like episode 49 and 50. It's Jules Hartley. And she starts giving us a lens into the the crazy pants of what's going on and it's not stopping. So thank you, Darcy, for bringing that up. It's a part of why telling our stories really matters because it does bring legitimacy to the idiocy, I don't even know if that's a word. I keep using it sure. like the fourth time. Fuckery, idiocy. The fuckery, yeah. The fuckery that's really happening in the name of the teachings in Kundalini Yoga. Yeah. And so to kind of, to go on these routes that we go on that say, you know, practice what you want, but then don't do the, you know, for me, I, I feel like what it does is it kind of allows systems that are embedded with predator ideology yes. to be okay because we're so normalized to predator ideology. Right. Like, no, it's not 100%. okay. It's not okay. And He's it's not okay. Harvey Weinstein. He what you said? He's just Harvey Weinstein. Ex yes. Like that Yogi Bhajan is just another Harvey Weinstein. It, and, and, and right, it does. Our community is not unique. These things are no. going on all over the place. And therefore, if we don't speak to it, then what happens is another generation or several generations of children are quite literally born into the yes. same teachings that you think stopped in 85 or 95 or 2005 because you started waking up to your own cognitive dissonance and getting the heck out of right. Dodge. But no, folks, three years ago, some of us just start paying attention, calling this a cult, right. and we got to look around us because the popularity, literally the kundalini yoga train, the celebrity status of it yeah. is for real, for real. And Guru Mook and these people set the foundation that has only created a hyperspeed of criminals right. like Hari Jiwan or whatever his name is, Steve, whatever, um, to do these same things with women right now. Like yes. Burjugat was the tip of the iceberg, but it keeps going. And, and your stories matter to try to subvert this chaos train. Yeah, I agree. I agree. You're, you know, you're there, you know, like being in the LA scene is a whole nother thing when you're in it. It's hard. And I, and you can see why you don't participate. You're kind of like, and, and I think as three HO people that a part of the early training you talked about is to just not speak to the chaos that's happening. Like, well, and it's, talk about that. well, and it's hard because again, back to, it just took two and a half hours for you and I to talk out my crazy wacky life. And when I have friends who I went to, I went to this pretentious all girls private high school and 
you know, they're like taking their kundalini and they would be part of the Guru Jagat crew and they got their names and they're looking all cute and they're like weird faux turbans. And faux turbans. Oh my God. Folks, you go to yoga classes these days and they literally have these faux turbans that you can put on your head and wrap like, like the older woman bonnet that I used to sell candy to in the street. (laughs) Like, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, and and you want to die as a kid born in Creature. Right. And you want and you care about them, but you want them to stop. Yeah. <laughs> and you can't they, you can't spend an hour and a half talking about this. And even when you hear this, I can see some of my people in my life going, yeah, well, my childhood was rough too. And it's understanding the nonsense and bullshit that created 3HO. Yeah. And that still perpetuates it. Perpetuates. It still gives it, is a it life. Thr- and I will, I, I, I will say kudos to Gurmukh and Tej in a very reverse, sarcastic way. Damn, they were brilliant marketing team. I mean, I know they weren't part marketing together, but the brand creation that happened from branding Kundalini and getting celebrities out of their studio into their studios in a world dictated by celebrity trend damn what they did i agree and the power of a brand to get you to not think critically about the fact that if if a practice was so good and it actually offered the result of awareness then how would these levels of abuse carry on for 50 years with nobody speaking to it until last 2020 exactly but so, that's the it, branding. I think back to when I listed the totalistic cults, they didn't brand themselves. They didn't. I don't know how in the mother of the universe, dressed all in white, head to toe, carrying Kirpons, we managed to brand ourselves. But at the end of the day, the, we branded a cult and mainstreamed it. Or not and, we and they. in and in the name of consciousness. In the name of consciousness. So let's get yes. clear on this because that yes. to me is what makes it so dangerous today. It's so easy to yes. just be doing our own work and being like, oh my God, like now I'm just waking up to like, wow, that experience wasn't that. It was this. And, and this is powerful right. part of the work that we all have to do. And right. yet what I also want us to remember is there's plenty of people still right now today yes. not knowing how to uncouple themselves from kundalini yoga because their entire life is uh-huh. rooted in it. And right. so therefore there's elements that they aren't going to be allowing themselves to see or to feel, as you've pointed out, because to actually look at and feel what's taken place over the last 50 years means that we've rationalized and justified lots of things that were never okay and that's not easy unpacking no so we want to make the yoga okay we want to make certain things wrong and certain things right and and the right truth of it is you start unpacking the the messy cult well and the people i think who have the brand and the business want to separate themselves and say well we don't do that anymore we don't do this anymore and we, they do, number one. They I mean, do. a friend of mine, I don't know if they are still doing this. A friend of, an acquaintance of mine, let me clarify. She had to pay money to get her name. I was like, yeah. you wrote like a check? 
Oh, yeah, people write in regularly. Yeah. And and one time I ran into Naringin and she has, she's supposedly the one who YB left the naming formula to. Yes, I knew that. And she's at the yoga festival telling people about the special formula. And I'm just kind of like sitting there like, you got to be out of your fucking mind in my mind, you know, yeah. but it, it turned into like this mystical marketing strategy. And yeah, people go to the website and every yoga class they're promoting it. And after solstice, people come back with their new name and everybody feels like they're enlightened. Yeah. I have to, t- I'm going to tell you a quick name story only because it's hysterical, but it's not hysterical. Um, I, I think I was the first Upma. If I remember correctly, everybody was serious thought. I really felt like I got screwed <laughs> because then people were calling me Oopie. And I was like, I don't know. And I was already the littlest. I was like not feeling the love of the pretty princess name. And BBG and I were together because again, I'm at the, I'm in Espanola. So I'm hanging out with BBG one day <laughs> and at the, at the Waigurus, like she had taken me over to her, her place. And BBG goes, you know, your name, she didn't say it this way. She said it in her, you know, with her accent and her the way she speaks. And she's like, you know, your name's not right. And I'm like, what now? <laughs> and she said, I think it was a typo. And I'm like, what? <laughs> and I, I'm not saying what I'm just listening. So I've always carried that. So I find out that apparently my name should have been U-P-A-M-A. U-P-A-M-A. That's what she said. So I, I think nothing of it. And I just kind of let it go my whole entire life. And about two months ago, did a text me and he's like, you're a snack. I'm like, I'm a what? He sends me a picture. I actually have it someplace of this little bag of like rice cake or something. And it's called UPMA, UPMA. I'm like, I'm a snack food. (laughs) (laughs) He saw me last, last time I was in New Mexico. He's like, here, I got you one. Like, oh. My God, the snack. BBG oh. was right. <laughs> oh my. Um, this is reminding me of how so many trauma stories that we tell in our lives, we use humor as a way right. to really um, find the levity in it, right? To kind of, yeah. and, I, and I know that's what has happened within different groups of, of second geners. Um, and we want to acknowledge all, the, all of you that the, this stuff isn't funny you know, totally. Absolutely. And, and the way it's not, and the way that we bring levity to it because yeah. of the familiarity, kind of the familiarity of having a weird right. name of what it means to have a typo in your name, these little things that are not little, but we've made yeah. them little as a way to justify our own cognitive dissonance and normalize 100%. what is not normal. Yeah. I mean, I remember going to my great grandma's, she must've been in her eighties. She was Polish, didn't speak any English. If she did, she never told anybody. <laughs> and my father insisted on her calling me Utma. Wow. And I remember she was so upset. So upset. Um, she wanted to call me Darcy. And she wanted, you know, I mean, that was important to her. And um, my father, being the ass he is, wouldn't budge. And ultimately, I barely got to see my great grandma anymore after that. Because um, it was uncomfortable for her. My grandma asked us not to. Mm. um so to your point yeah I mean I I make light of it but you know you and I've talked about this I've done decades of other therapy I have gotten to a point where to allow I have prioritized the trauma in my own life and the name to me is one that I appreciate that did it and I could have a good chuckle over it but I also can see when people write 
and they're cons- they really don't even know how to begin the process to change their name. But I also started using Darcy at 13. So I went back to my birth name very early. Yeah. Um, so it, it doesn't have that same connection for me because it didn't become a part of my adult identity. Yeah. And, and that, that teenage identity, the fact that you were kind of like in this formative years of that, yeah. you know, identity stage and such a big deal to not be able to solidify going to India to really form that identity of what you was calling you right. that informed the rest of your life, much less right. your mom leaving, you know, being bisexual, all of that, that, that added right. on to the chaos, you know, there, there's so many layers to, to all of the, the story that you brought. I also want to just go back and acknowledge the courage that it takes for you to expose yourself in this way. To share, you had mentioned it's a part of this recompassioning ourselves, like letting yeah. ourselves be seen, letting ourselves be vulnerable, letting us, our, our story, let, letting others in. Um, so I want to acknowledge that growth in you because, because you spoke to that. Thank you. My son's been peeking out and listening. My son has heard <laughs> things today. He's never heard. Oh my gosh. And he wow. knows, I mean, again, some of my friends are very much an active part of his life and have been my whole life. He knew me, he knew grandpa Deva until Deva, pa- my papa passed, you know? Mm. Um, so he's aware of all of it, mm. but he's never at this scope heard. Yeah. Um, I also know that you have, uh, you know, rich portals of, of stories in different directions. So before we wrap up, I just want to ask, is there anything more that you haven't covered that you want to make sure you reveal and share to us today? I think there's not. I mean, I've been glancing at my notes. You had suggested that I, you know, I make notes and I did enough. And I think the conversation organically got to all of it. Um, like I said, when I synopsized a minute, a couple minutes ago, I just think that if there's if there are any things that can come from this that anybody else can gather, it's understanding and sympathizing and having compassion for what we have each been through in its own completely unique way. You know, part of us all being at different parts of the country, different ages, different everything. I mean, there's really no not a tremendous amount of synergy except for the attributes that make a totalistic cult, the assignment of names. Ding, 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 ding. Right. The ways that course of control was, was, was what you did in the beginning, the the, the early trainings. Yeah. And it's not a comparison. It's not, it's not a better than it's not an, if this, then what, but it is an understanding of how our foundations have had implications on who we have evolved into as adults. And then at the same time that it's also not too late to address them. Mm. Oh my gosh, mic drop on that. Can't agree more. Um, You know, the group therapy that was offered where some second gen came and did it together. That was some of the things that blew my mind about it was, whoa, the amount of things that I had personalized as if they were my personal issues that I had to work out. I had no idea. Of course, the looking at something as a cult helped me. Just like I saw that checklist and I was like, holy moly. And I agree. It was in 2020 that I fully allowed myself to look at that checklist, like look up high demand groups, start looking Mm -hmm. at Stephen Hassan's work. And you're like, whoa. And then it gave me such relief in this really weird binded way in, in that I got to 
not take it all so personal. Like that's, that's not yeah. me. Yeah. There are people I belong with. Oh, I mean, they happen to be other cult survivors, but yeah. yeah. I mean, we have a tribe. We really do. And, um, you know, I also have had to decide how much do I need? It's not that I, again, it's not a secret. I've never, ever thought this was a secret. And there's a difference between secrecy and privacy. And it's okay to, I can see sometimes the look on some of my friends' faces if I'm too cavalier or I drop something or they reference something from the 70s. And I'll just be like, I was in the cult. I don't know. I really don't know what you're talking about. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, I, I don't have, con I don't have a lot of shared context. Um, and it's okay. But then to recognize that if somebody else in your life, non-cult life feels overwhelmed by the conversation, there's a large group of people who aren't. And to uh, other leverage the connectivity. Yeah. 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 Leverage the connectivity and be okay it has the hardest part besides compassion is allowing myself to learn to be vulnerable and not see it as a weakness. Yeah. yeah. Allowing myself to be angry and not realize that that's a failure. Mm. There's um, something wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Allowing myself these tangible emotions mm. and understanding when they impacted my life. Yes. Um, I, I got lucky and I actually went to an anger management therapist and it wasn't lucky because it was a bad situation that got me there. Mm. Um, and I had never seen specifically an anger management therapist because to the outside world, I'm not angry. I am cool as a cucumber. I don't scream. I don't yell. I was angry. Mm. He taught me how to be angry. And mm. taught me that being angry was not weak. Mm. I mm. thought it was so weak. Mm. So I would just continue to encourage everybody to not necessarily rest as you seek steps towards your own healing. And my personally, I Googled, I got a great therapist starting two years ago. I Googled cult therapy and I'll be very candid about it because I, I don't think she's taking new clients, but I found Rachel Bernstein through Google. And, um, turns out apparently she does podcasts on this too. I had no idea. I literally was looking for a Los Angeles therapist who, who actually understood cult dynamics. When you can get a therapist who does, it is life-changing. Mm. Mm. Life-changing. Thank you. I've been feeling like I need a, a therapist, specifically a cult therapist and, and reached out for some support. So I, I'm really feeling what you're putting yeah. down here. I'm really feeling that to learn to trust ourselves when we grew yeah. up, not even learning what that even could possibly mean. Yeah. Um, there's yeah. so many things to what Darcy named that I can't uh, encourage you enough to go back and, and listen to this episode. Um, because there's layers to this, there's layers to our own reclamation and what we have access to, right? And learning to feel your anger or disappointment or sadness or feel anything at all, um, yeah. much less needs. I want to bring up the hunger. I, that's a big thing. I've noticed how <laughs> hungry I am. And it's so interesting in the healing process as we um, <clears throat> look at life for what it really is instead of through the nostalgic lens 
that I've looked through, right? Suddenly I'm like, whoa. And, and again, I agree with you. Like as much as I had left years ago, I hadn't ever really quote eaten meat. Of course I considered myself eating meat. I tried meat. I considered myself kind of open to it, but I didn't actually organize my life around making sure I ate meat and these things, there's a difference. And so when we're indoctrinated in early course of control, Rachel Bernstein, love her podcast. If you're not listening to it, it's called Indoctrination Podcast. Can't agree, can't encourage you enough to listen because you can't see what you've been trained not to. And that is the nature of coercive control. And you don't know how your brain has been malleable or malleable, made, puttied, so that yeah. your thoughts move in a direction, your choices move in a direction, your decisions move in a direction, how, how you make money, the relationships you let in or don't let in. Every yeah. sense of our sense of self is wrapped in through this, this cult world. And I'm yes. still blown away, Darcy, that your story is your story, that you would have, have, quote, left at 13, and yet it was just by three years ago in 2020 that you could actually say I'm in a cult and it wasn't a spiritual community. And I, I concur. It took me that long until I could actually be like, well, I wasn't raised in a spiritual community. I was raised in a cult. And when yeah. you change that, you give yourself permission to start seeing things and feeling things that you've never, um, that maybe yeah. it's never been safe to before. I think also just a final thing for part of that was that as I shared I dabbled in it before that. I dabbled in it in college, believing in when I first discovered Stephen Hassan and the Cult Awareness Network. And I started finding a blog that Kamala was doing. And, um, but because I had my father and my friends or some friends still in it, it felt so dismissive and disrespectful for me to say that. So I... I, I did, I did dismiss it. I, I, I had started to think like, oh, it is, it is, it is. And then I was like, but it can't be, it can't be these people. They're too smart. I'm too smart. We're all too smart as adults. People are staying in there. We can't, it can't be a cult. Yep. Yep. <laughs> um, I call it cult ish. I refer sure. to it. There are cult tendencies. There are all yes. sorts of ways that I right. they weren't doing what- the they weren't doing the nonsense anymore, at least in our generation. Exactly. You know, like I call it the dogma. You don't have to wear all white. You apparently can wear color. Um, they went to India. They learned Sikhism in India, right? They learned. I always wonder if he regretted that. Like they went and learned what actual Sikhs do and what the religion is truly about. Yeah. And so it wasn't so in your face. Um, you know, there wasn't, a, I mean, he still had his entourage if he went to Century City in Los Angeles to see a film, but most other people weren't doing that. Mm. So I, I just mitigated it. I let it go until a few years ago. Yeah. And you, you move on in life, right? You're trying to form yeah. your own identity and trying to create a bridge into everyday life anyway. Yeah. Um, and you're talking about really cool human beings right? Yeah. that are learning how to navigate their way. And these are some yeah. of your best friends and, you know, you guys might rendezvous together and, and, and the stories are told in kind of a nostalgic humor, fun way. And so the gravity of things. And so these things just kind of become social packs. Yeah, absolutely. 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 And then some of the people had become 
you know, and then trying to understand the hierarchy of just how somebody has evolved. And, you know, even when there was a lot of people when there, when this first started and so much talk was about who was bullying whom. Mm. And it was from the outside as somebody who, yes, I was bullied in Española after they went to India. There was a boy who used to beat the shit out of me, which is just mm. not okay. I mean, beat the shit out of me. And um, then somebody came back from India and handled it for me. <laughs> um, and then he went to India and got, it, it just, it was not okay. I was not, you know, to be effed with. But by the same token, it was hard also because I know, we. I think we also have to allow sometimes, and this is going to be controversial, for most bullies in non-cult life, the parents are racists. The parents are cruel. The parents allow and create an environment that raises this child. We, as a group, created the environment of protect yourself at all costs because only one another is going to do it for you. And a lot of the bullies, some of the bullies, quote unquote, were created not out of the same thing. And I and again, I will take a heat of shit for this for some people. I just wish there was some understanding of how bullies were created, how that came to be. Yeah, I think what I'm hearing you speak to is the complexity of what it means to be a traumatized, yeah. abused and victimized child that yes. then grows into a system in which you're rewarded um, yeah. for ter- certain types of behavior, which um, what you've actually painted the picture is how that environment creates it. When abusers yeah. are uh, protected um, and certain behavior of public shaming and other types of physical abuse are um, pedestalized, you know, and rewarded and validated, abuse you know one can become prey and then become a predator and it's built into the systems of survivalship and hierarchy and actual actual promotion of what gets you to the next level of what needs to happen and I don't think it's understood enough, but I also think that we haven't heard enough of everyone's pain. People go jumping right into this and that because those old relationship bonds get inflamed. And it is very complex because everybody's experience matters. And the way one becomes an abuser, you have children in our own community that then became abusers as as children and adults, but not because they that's who they are. It's because the system grew. It's like growing up in the military and then calling the the head military guy an abuser. Well, the system allows for systemic abuse and our system, whether or not we acknowledge it, is a quote system that taught bullied, bullying behavior, abusive, predatory behavior as a part of the social order yes it had a bullying physically and then sexually it was also because there was so as we discussed earlier there's so much tradesies if this then that punishment consequence shame 
that that then propagated into how you handle yourself sexually as an adult. I mean, it's just all at the end of the day, it, your childhood, your childhood creates you. And we were raised in a cult. And we were never allowed a childhood. Correct. So we actually didn't have a childhood and we were made to become adults. So we were, it's what's called adultification. And Mm. this is stuff in, in trauma worlds. As we start doing therapy, folks, there are whole languages to things that you and I have called our personality, things that you think are in the, the meditation you did that your soul spoke to you about, or you think that the Bonnie's, you know, illuminated to you or whatever the thing is, what's so fascinating about admitting that we're grown up in a cult is that. It doesn't matter what your indoctrination is, whether it's a Christian cult right. or a Jewish cult or a mm-hmm. Sikh cult or whatever the indoctrination is, it doesn't matter because the systems of control are the same. And when we can right. start to look at that, we can start to re-examine our life with more compassion, with more right. vulnerability, with more tenderness for that seven-year-old that shouldn't have been put in a position to have to justify your rent for staying at an adult's house. Right. Or and also your existence anywhere. <laughs> true. And how you also allow yourself to give yourself grace for the things that you do want to incorporate. And they're small and they're minor, like, you know, you and I discussing meat or genuinely the fact that I had to explain to a boss of mine once about my hair. It was back when coaching dress was important to her. And as a female boss, she was, she was trying to make me dress a little differently for the role that I was aspiring towards. And I finally looked at her one day because what she was doing was the passive aggressive. Oh, you look great when your hair is down, commenting when it was down, which for me is about one out of every 700 times. Today was a very conscious choice. And I finally looked at her one day and I said, I need you to understand I'm physically uncomfortable when my hair is down. Mm. I said, I was, and I said, religion, I said, I was raised in a religion where my hair was, my head was often covered. So Mm. this is very, very uncomfortable for me. Mm. And that was the most of an explanation I was willing to give her. And she, and you know, and she understood. And and I said, and every time you tell me I look pretty, number one, you're complimenting me, which again, sends me into a tailspin. I hate being complimented. Mm. So, and then part two, I'm taking it as a, a dig. And I said, so please stop commenting on my hair. Um, but my point is, is that it gives me comfort when my hair's up. I am more comfortable when I wear white, half my wardrobe's white. I just am. Mm. I, 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 I try, I try eating meat sometimes because I think my health requires it. And then I'm just not happy. Okay. I shouldn't not, not eat meat because I equate it to three (laughs) HO. I can be a vegetarian without having anything to do with that. Maybe I'm just vegetarian. Like I have to be okay allowing whatever comforts I did have to be a part of my life. It's okay. Um, and they can because we, phases, they can give you comfort yeah. for a while and they can move out. Like I look at it right. kind of like orbiting, you know, like something that's nostalgia. It doesn't mean we cut it off. It means we keep right. looking at like, a, what's real about that, but what's not right. real about that. And you let yourself have it until it doesn't have its pull on you. Right. Exactly. And I, it's all okay. It really is. Mm-hmm. You know, in business, there's this thing that you create a habit is uh, seven habits, a book, seven habits of highly effective people. Mm-hmm. And it takes 21 repetitions to create a habit. And 
sometimes I purposely create new habits for myself. Very, very intentional. When I took my cutter off, I counted days because I would, I, I would, I would grab my wrist. I would, it was weird. <laughs> I felt like I was missing something and I had to coach myself breathing, getting through a few weeks. Mm. And then I just stopped noticing. Yeah. You bring up such important points that, that really are so trauma informed and that we don't, you know, perhaps we'll have an expert on that gets to speak to some of those things, but I just can't encourage you all enough to keep reading. Uh, yep. Yanya Lalich, um, who has the book called Escaping Utopia. I find that's really awesome because she speaks to um, other children who are also born or raised in cults. And so it shows there's like seven or eight of them. And it just shows how you can grow up in very different backgrounds, but go through very similar um, developmental challenges right. um, that are unique to coercion control and specific to a cult. And um, and the complexity of it, like what you're speaking to around the kata or eating meat or whatever these things that finding our identity and Stephen Hassan's work talks a lot about this. There is an essential self in there that mm -hmm. is beneath all these layers of our cult identity. And yet when a lot of us as children, we don't have an identity prior to it. So to feel that essential self means we have to learn how to have a level of intimacy with ourselves in a way that we didn't get uniquely as children because that's how cults work. They create a detached um, system so that we quite literally are dysregulated as a normal sense of life. And if you're dysregulated in life, then you constantly are externally oriented and you're looking for a way to perform and to externally you know, get the things done so that we can get our needs met. And this stuff is so interesting and deep. And yet while we can have unique experiences, such unique individual stories, it's within a landscape that is a shared communal landscape that our trauma didn't happen in isolation. It actually happened communally. And therefore the power in listening to each other's stories supports each other to heal communally. This listening quite literally is a communal healing practice. Um, when you're ready, it's okay to not be okay to listen. It's okay to right. like, people will be like, oh, I haven't listened to your podcast. It's okay. Because when you're ready, you'll listen. Because all of us have that magnetic pull to unpack the, the good versus the not good, the convoluted versus the, the, the love. And when you have love and abuse commingled from such a young age, they're one and the same. Yeah. They're, they're not distinct. And so if you wonder why you magnetize really convoluted choices, it's because these choices were very convoluted. And so to be a kid of an environment where there was a bunch of convoluted choices happening all around us all the time, 24 seven, then you and me were normalized in convolution. We function fucking well under high pressure convolution and mm -hmm. what a skill. And so there is silver lining to therapy. As you work with good cult therapists, there are parts of you, you get a claim and have your super superwoman self and your reclaimed vulnerability simultaneously. There does come a time where you get both, but in the meanwhile, it's very messy, 
tough, heavy, dark, yeah. all the things. And it's why we need support. And our support is not a yoga class, folks. It's not each other. Okay. It's therapy. Get a fucking cult therapist. You know, uh -huh. I just had somebody reach out, you know, sharing their, their, their convoluted story. And I just said, you know, the best thing I can tell you is do some culty programming and do it as a family. Look up Stephen Hassan's work. Like we all need some culty programming. I don't even care what kind of therapy you've been doing and for how many years. If you haven't had cult deprogramming therapy, yeah. nope, nope, because this stuff influences us in ways that determines the way you wake up in the morning, the way yep. you brush your teeth, the way you shit, the way you pee, the way you bathe, the way you eat, the way you wear your oh. hair, the way you don't wear your hair. Yeah. Every aspect of our existence was controlled. And that's what makes these things a high controlled group. There's actually right. academics that study this shit and have figured these things out on our behalf. We don't have to question it. We just have to be ready and willing to listen and learn. Right. So thank you. Um, bam, we did good bam. today. I thought today was awesome. And I just want thank to you. say thank you for bringing what you bring. Um, thank you for honoring Carter Perk and Kate Felt's story for speaking to the generation that we haven't heard from yet. Um, and for being one of the first, if I think the, uh, one of the first, I guess Serena Ankar came on. Serena Ankar was first. Yeah. Yep. Um, and we had in the Nirankar we had as well. And so, but there's just two, two voices so far. And, and there's many more of you. And I, I have spoken to this and I, I thank you, Darcy, for, for coming forward. But there is a dynamic in the group among you all that I think has some sort of specialness that um, perhaps we'll do a group conversation because I think there's some really special stories that will come out that won't ever come out. And even some voices that will come forward that wouldn't come out individually but they would come out collectively. And they might even come out through others. You know, if you, I know you've, you're looking at doing the group conversation where again, today I was not willing to use names without permission, but there are, you know, there are many people's opinion. Uh, there's many conversations I have that I've had with dear friends. And perhaps if there was a group conversation, they might give some of the people on that group permission to share their story on their behalf, trusting them with it. Trusting yes. them with, with trusting them with the moment. So that might occur as well. And I just think that's beautiful. And I, and I want listeners to hear, you know, I don't, I don't solicit to get stories because our stories come forward when we're ready and right. safety matters and your timing matters. And no one knows your in inner, right. Your ability to feel safe. We're all learning. Wow. I function very well unsafe. My mm -hmm. whole life, I functioned this yep. way. And so what does it even mean to be ready? You know, and we have such pressure built into our sense of self as if we're obligated to do this for the whole. And you're not, you don't ever have to tell your story. It doesn't mean anything if you don't. That's just your process. And somebody else might want to do that because they're ready for that. Like your story is yours. Your experiences are yours. This is not an end result. I would say this is just a place to come if you find that your story is ready to be told and you'll feel it in your bones. In the meantime, get the therapy and support you need um, because that's all this is. We're just creating safe space to talk about things that we've quite literally been indoctrinated to not talk about. Correct. Because we're perpetually fine. Because we're perpetually strong as steel and steady as, steady as stone. stone. 
Yep. <laughs> oh, oh my geez. gosh. Oh, yeah. I know. Oh, like, geez. F? <laughs> okay. Well, we are going to wrap this up, but tell us about your song before we sign off. So I have two things I keep in my office, my work office, I have phrases that if I hear them, I write them down. There's about seven that I keep on a chalkboard. And I, there are these, again, moments you hear something and you're like, ah, yes, that connects for me. Um, and there is respond, don't react. Um, you get what you allow. Um, just various things. And songs are the same way for me. So um, I don't, there's tons of songs. We all have our war songs. I have my fight songs. I have my I'm working out songs. And I don't know why I had my, my, my favorite romantic song is your song by Elton John. Um, but this song is called This Is Me from The Greatest Showman. And I heard it for the first time when the, you know, when it came out with Hugh Jackman and I saw the actress, I saw the YouTube of the actress singing it for the first time in rehearsals. She was unwilling to sing it out loud. She was very honest about it. She, you know, they're in, they're at a table read and she starts singing it for the first time in a crowd. And you can see her just rise up. You watch the transcendence of her confidence build. She starts behind the podium. She's quiet. She's afraid to sing. Mm. And then by the end, she is pounding this song about her own identity and being herself. And mm. it's called, This Is Me. And the, when I saw that, I heard, I saw the YouTube video. I'd never heard the song because I didn't see the movie. I bawled. Mm. And I don't cry often. And I listen to it over and over. And I Googled the words and I was like, that is how I feel. Cause I heard the song for the first time a year ago. And as we've all gone through this process, um, when I feel like I just need to just go at something and I'm unsure and I'm uncomfortable and I'm afraid to speak, I listen to this song. Love it. So inspiring. And folks, as you know, we don't always listen to the uh, full song because of copyright, but you can listen to the Uncomfortable Conversations 3HO playlist and the link is in the show notes. So here, let's get a little snippet here. This is me. I am not a stranger to the dark. Hide away, they say, because we don't want your broken parts. I've learned to be ashamed of all my scars Run away, they say No one will love you as you are But I won't let them break me down to dust I know that there's a place for us For we are glorious When the sharpest words want to cut me down I'm gonna say I got tingles. I got tingles. Yep. I'm going to have to go back and listen to that whole song. Watch like, the YouTube. Come? Yeah. Like how come I don't know this song? Like what? Yeah. 
That was so good. Thank you so much. Um, You're welcome. Folks, thank I you. Just, yeah, thank you, Darcy. Um, I want to just encourage all of you that are on your healing path to just keep it up. I know this stuff is not easy and take breaks and come back at it, you know, and get the support yeah. that you need. We really all need therapy. If you are not yet getting therapy, make it the space for it and do it. Okay. And I can't agree more, get a cult therapist. Um, and on that note, if you want to be a guest, just know that you can email me at gn at gurunishan.com. Um, I know there's many second gen that have reached out and there's going to be a flood of stories coming soon from, from our generations. And our generation is not monolithic. There are many versions of each one of us that have adapted and coped and, create, coped and created our own unique interior world to justify this existence. And I just want to say how brave you are, how powerful you are, and that your voice really does matter. Um, it matters for lots of reasons. It, it matters because it gives a web uh, of sense to somebody else's existence. And it's yeah. really wild how we do that for each other in this ripple effect of, of collective healing. Um, but what it also does is it puts into public space um, the opportunity that your unique story and the timeline that you bring and the unique lens of your view is forever in the public domain so that some new person joining Kundalini Yoga tomorrow does not get suckered in to the same manipulation, the same garbage, the same arranged marriage, the same India, send their kids to India program that is absolutely, absolutely in full effect. And all throughout Europe, all throughout Latin America, people are hearing some very bypassy, light wash stories of your existence of our existence and the stories of how wonderful the children of this Dharma are and how the teachings have helped our children are so infused in the teacher training system. It's, it's repulsive. And so your stories do matter in a collective storytelling to put into public space the lie that teacher trainings continue to share about how magnificent the teachings were for the children of this community, for the pregnant women of this community, and for all the other stories that are perpetuated as consciousness and compassion when really it's training us not to feel. And taking Yogi Legend's picture out of the book does not change that teaching. We change the teaching by acknowledging the abuse and until that level of dialogue is happening in our teacher trainings, um, then all we're seeing is lightwashing and whitewashing of KRI's website, 3HO's website, and new predatory, super predatory teachers like Hari Jiwan, who you all think the toner bandit lost his way in 1985. No, no, no. He is full on arranging marriages and showing up at the Grammys, uh, winning awards because of the manipulation of tactics. Of, of the cult leader of YB is, is fully duplicated. And it was duplicated in Gurudev Singh, it's duplicated in lots of other people and it's fully on in, in RG1 and more. So tell your stories folks and remember, you'll know when you're ready. I thank you for listening. Um, please um, tune in to um, my latest podcast, uh, Uncomfortable Conversations on Predators in Business, Community, and Culture. We are moving this conversation to the, the larger scope of, of, of issues. We're talking about Native American genocide and erasure 
We're talking about the abuse of men and young boys by women. And that's not talked about. And mm. we talked about well-meaning whiteness and how you and I growing up with exceptional upbringings out of our identities allows us to not look at the white supremacy of our own exceptionalism. And these types of things aren't easy to look at. And so it's why we're having conversations because it un makes us uncomfortable. So tune into my latest podcast and start supporting survivors beyond 3HO because this predatory formula is everywhere. Yep. This concludes another episode of the Uncomfortable Conversations podcast, the untold stories of 3HO Kundalini Yoga community. If you'd like to contribute and donate to this podcast, you can make a one-time or monthly donation at gurunishan.com. And to be a guest, please email me at gn at gurunishan.com. Uh, please subscribe and follow, rate, and support this podcast by putting a five stars and writing a review. It helps to pop the podcast up in the show notes. Um, look in the show notes for all the details and looking forward to our next episode. Thanks so much for being here, Darcy. You're welcome. Thank you. Bye.